Well, hello and welcome to episode number 352 of the Plain Talking UK podcast. I'm Carlos and in this week's show, a West Atlantic 737 has a rather hard landing and Lufthansa will be soon departing on their longest flight ever with Polar Explorers on board. We also talk about some issues with the PA-28 and some corrosion problems. And in the military this week, the Australian Apaches are victorious in a helicopter competition. The 48th Fighter Wing uh, in RAF Lakenheath looks to future challenges. And we have an update on radios stolen from the Russian doomsday plane. Oh my goodness me, do you realise that's a story I remember? I'm no, slightly I scared. I'm slightly scared. And, anyway. and it's a military story that you remember. Right? <laughs> I know, absolutely. And joining me this week in the PTUK studios, it's the man that's got all the eggs and a lovely new hard drive. It's Matt Smith. <laughs> that's the most random introduction ever. Thanks thanks for, for that. Yes. Uh, it's true. Yeah, I, I, I didn't say it wasn't true. Uh, <laughs> it's just not where I expected you to go with that. But anyway, all part of the fun. Uh, yes, I, we do have a new, uh, new hard drive in the PTUK tower. So thank you very much uh, to everyone who uh, donates for helping us do that. It means I can store a bit more information on the machine and stop having to move files around. It has caused us a bit of a problem today because I, for some reason, decided to do it two hours before we went live. But hey, he lives and learns. <laughs> and how are, how are the eggs going, Matt? Have you used all 30 eggs yet? Uh, well, we have used 10 so far. Oh, blimey! I know, absolutely. Okay. Yeah, well, no, we well we had a we had a we had a homemade baking quiche um, as part of our uh, dinner today, so that was quite nice. Yeah, oh, nice. indeed. Oh, yeah, so much for them. Requests for more eggs will be forthcoming, no doubt. Excellent. That's fine. That's fine. Just <laughs> let me know. Yeah. So joining us as well this week, uh, as always, uh, all the way across from the gorgeous Charlotte area in the US of A, it is of course our legend that is Armando. Hello team. It is a new year, so contractually, uh, Nev and I have reset and we're going to start uh, our contract negotiations as to how many times we can appear together this uh, year. Oh dear, I do wish you two just get on. I mean, honestly. <laughs> it's, it's, it's that thing about military, isn't it? He just can't let it go, can he? <laughs> Wait, are we talking about Nev or me? A <laughs> uh, <laughs> little bit of column A, a little bit of column B. Uh, <laughs> how, how are things in the world of Armando this weekend? Good here. It was a pretty slow week. We had kind of poopy weather for flying or anything like that. I was supposed to fly with Steph on Thursday, but we ended up pushing that to this Sunday. So um, yeah, not a lot of flying actually this week, not compared to last week. So just been kind of quiet. Yeah, yeah. I'm glad to hear that you're actually getting some flying in here because in the UK, it's, it's uh, there's not a lot going on here really, not with GA. It's been really quiet, I must say. Even Matt might have noticed in the last few weeks, it's been really quiet over here with GA aircraft. But um, I, w I wasn't aware it was ever noisy. Yeah, I've got yeah, to be honest. It, it is quiet. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, we uh, obviously we're missing Nev this week, and we are all missing Nev this week. But uh, we do have a special guest joining us uh, on the show this week, and this is his second time on the show. Uh, he last uh, appeared on the show back on. You mean to say we didn't put him off first wonderful. time round? Is that what? I said? No, I know, <laughs> I know. He, I know. I, I, I tell you, I, I sent him a message. Said, uh, "Would you like to come on the show?" And immediately the response was, "I want to be on. I want to be on forever." Wow, wow, wow Peter, and... I'm so sorry that your diary is that empty. <laughs> I, I don't know what to so, say. <laughs> welcome onto the show back again. It's great to have you back. 
Uh, and uh, it's quite well gives me great pleasure to welcome peter collins welcome welcome peter oh, it's awesome awesome to be back very emotional words from you there i, mean, I have to say quite uh, quite touched quite actually <laughs> but, uh, yeah. <laughs> but it's great to be back guys uh, absolutely wonderful fantastic so uh peter obviously we'll we'll have a chat with you later on the show but i'm guessing that in your world it's been fairly busy yeah um i i think in my world it's uh, been very much of a kind of huge change of gear really but uh yeah it's been pretty busy there's um things have changed well as i'm sure everybody on the show knows beyond recognition but uh yeah pretty busy we're keeping busy things are good uh but uh yeah interesting times very interesting times so you're still doing uh, lots of inspections of uh, engines uh, aircraft engines yeah yeah we're doing uh, quite a lot of uh, and training actually as oh. well uh training uh, for the uh, simulators and uh, engine ground run training, uh, boroscope inspections, boroscope training. Uh, it's mainly the inspection work is the is the bread and butter. But uh, yeah, it's all good. Well, it's good to have you back on again. So we have uh, we've got a weekly roundup, haven't we? Uh, who's who wants to do the weekly roundup this week? Things as Nev's not here. Armando, would you like to take that? Um, I'm sorry. Say what? <laughs> <laughs> The weekly roundup. Uh, we've got uh, a picture, haven't we? Uh, yes, right. So it was up. It was updating, and I, I could see the uh, the title. Yeah. So this is a, a picture that uh, I actually not sure. So it's from Erica Armstrong, which is a chicken the cockpit. I think that's a social media handle. Um, but yeah, Matt's got it up there. This is an interesting paint job. I don't think it is actually a paint job. I can't actually tell. But this is what happens. Uh, this is simulating what happens when you over prime an aircraft. Uh, so, you know, the PA-28 Archer, which we're actually going to talk about. Uh, actually, this is an arrow. Um, we're going to talk about this a little bit later. But this one has a very interesting paint job, which is uh, fire flames coming from the engine, which I think would be a surprise to anybody that saw it, you know, taxiing around. Um, but hopefully it just stays as a paint job and not, uh, you know, not anything for real. It's all right. Don't, don't you don't you worry, Armando. I shall have a word with Carlos about throwing you under the bus right now. Don't, don't you worry about that. <laughs> uh, Carlos is fine. We talked about it before. It's just our, our show notes were slightly updating, so I had only text. Lovely. <laughs> Always a pleasure. Never mind. Actually, I, I must say, I thought I did saw that. From this distance here, from the where the picture's taken, it does look very... It looks, it, it looks like yeah. stuff is missing because like, it. I mean, I, I, it, to me, it looks like the propeller is missing. But perhaps that's just like, perhaps that's just me. I think yeah, it's that caught, Yeah, yeah, it's horizontal. That caught me yeah. off guard too. And this is also the plane that uh, Captain Al flies on his spare time. Right. Okay. Yeah, it's Piper yeah. Arrow. You're right. Yeah. Actually, Lee, da Lee Davis in the chat room says, "Great livery or Photoshop." I think that is real. That is real. Oh Lee. wow. Real. Okay. Yeah. Gosh. Yeah. That's a, that's a it's probably an expensive paint job. Yeah. It is just a very expensive paint job. There's no doubt about that. So, chat room. Well, acknowledging everyone in the chat room of joining us this week on the show. So we're going to say a big thanks to... We're going to go right to the top of the list here and make sure we get everyone. Richard Adams. Hello to you, Richard. Uh, Lee Davis. And we have got Lane Street. That'll uh, keep Matt happy uh, with pop-ups in the chat room. Uh, we've got Alex Robinson. Hello to you, Alex. Uh, Stephen H. Uh, I'm just scrolling down. See if I'm. Uh, oh, where have I got? 
Richard Adams. Just well, this is going smoothly, ah, isn't it? There's, <laughs> actually, there's actually someone called <laughs> Neville Bynes in the chat. Room, Never heard of him. Uh, which is surprising. Neil Lanvorn, hello to you, Neil. Alan Loveday as well is in the chat room. Rick Bell is in the oh, chat my goodness. room. The legend that is Rick Bell is in the chat room. We are not hello worthy. Uh, Jacob Darlington Brown is also in the chat room. It must be about what, like, minus I can say it must be like four o'clock in the morning where he is now, isn't it? It must, it must be, be five. Uh, is it five o'clock? I think something like that. That's anyway, we'll find out in a minute. That's dedication. <laughs> Hello to you, John Jester and Masha as well. Hello to you, and uh, obviously Armando's in the chat room as well, which is always again fun. never heard of him either. Who's he? So make sure if you're listening to our dulcet tones by the audio version and want to join us on YouTube, don't forget to check us out on YouTube. Uh, if you check us out forward slash Plain Talking UK on YouTube. Hit the subscribe button, hit the bell icon, which is right next to it, to be notified when we are live and recording new episodes, because we would love to have you all in the chat room. Are you all right, so, Carlos? That, that wasn't up to your usual high standard. I know. <laughs> You're a bit a, tired, uh, mate. <laughs> I, I, I will say that, actually, in my defence, a certain person had me up at um, five o'clock this morning. Right, I'm assuming that's the cat, because you'd never dare no, to talk about your no, wife like no, that, surely. No. <laughs> It was a very early start this morning. Right. But, uh, I, 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 I'll tell you offline why the reason I had to get up at five o'clock. Oh, right. Uh, she, did, uh, she didn't make you go for a run, did she? <laughs> nail on the head, man. Well wow. Done. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, yeah. Un unexpected. Um. Except, except take away the running part. Right. Okay. Add, add a bicycle. Oh, okay. Well, that's, uh, yeah, okay. Fair enough. Wow. I, I, yeah. I, I'm exhausted for you, mate. I'm so sorry. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, I won't tell you what time I fell out of bed because I overslept. We'll gloss, gloss over <laughs> Again? that. Again? Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> Rude. Anyway, should we uh, do some aviation? <laughs> let's do some So we are going to start the show then, as we do each week, with our rundown of the weekly news from across the world and the UK. So if everyone's ready. Uh, yes, ready? yes, yes. Let's go. <laughs> So, kicking off this week's first news story, this one comes to us from Simon's awesome site, the Aviation Herald. Uh, look them up on aviationherald.com, awesome site. And uh, this one is West Atlantic Boeing 737-400 freighter registration Golf Juliet Mike Charlie Yankee performing flight NPT-05L from East Midlands uh, here in the UK with two crew landed on Exeter's runway 26 at uh, 2.34 in the morning, suffered a very hard touchdown. The aircraft rolled out without further incident and no injuries were reported. Locals report a post-flight inspection uh, found creases around the fuselage uh, to the extent that the Royal Mail was unable to unload the mail. Oh, blimey. Uh, on January the 20th, uh, 2021, the AIOB announced a team of inspectors are continuing to gather evidence on site at Exeter Airport where they are investigating an incident involving a cargo aircraft which occurred on the 19th of January. Uh, now, Matt, you put some pictures on the screen there while I was reading out there. And it's safe to say, and I have, I did read a story actually, I think it was yesterday or today, I read a story online that they are going to be scrapping this aircraft. Wow. Yeah. So, the, 
I, I'm going to go ahead and, and give John Jester a chance to comment on this in the chat room. Um, I do believe Rick Bell was flying. This is one of his typical landings. I think he's been known to uh, <laughs> take uh, many, many airplanes per year out of service. Uh, no, this is a... Uh, it's interesting because I was, you know, looking at the weather on this one, it was at the time it was 230 at 10. So winds out of the west at 10 knots, no gusting, no nothing, light rain, scattered clouds at 1200 feet, uh, broken clouds at 4000 feet. Um, so probably what happened here, this is now just me guessing, right? And, and uh, John can chime in in the chat room. But uh, I, I'm guessing these guys are, are uh, probably at the law at the at the tail end of a long crew day. They're going into an airfield. Um, now, I don't know. East Midlands, I think, has a long enough run, or sorry, Exeter. Um, I don't know how long the runway is there, if anybody can chime in in the chat room there. But, uh, you know, you're taking a, a loaded 7, 737. In the, it's, it, this happened at 2.30 in the morning. Mm. Um, and uh, our producer, John, put together a nice little uh, chart showing the uh, descent rate of the aircraft. So um, we had, I, oh, so John's telling us it's about 6,800 foot runway. So it's not short, but it's not long. Um, and I, I'll tell you what, even at 120 knots, I don't know what the approach speed is for, for a 737-400, but at 120 knots, 130 knots, it uh, looks like they had full flaps deployed or pretty close to it. Um, when you have a 1,200 foot uh, cloud deck into a short runway, um, regardless of how many times you've done this, uh, that runway still comes up quick. And sometimes you just get it wrong. Now, uh, Peter can you know, chime in on this one. The 737 is a, a, an amazing airplane and it's designed. There's probably been plenty of pilots that planted it on the ground at close mm -hmm. to 2,000 feet per minute um, and, and maybe had some parts. But to do this kind of damage where the whole fuselage is buckled, they had a, a, a good... Um, picture from underneath in the wheel well where uh, mm. I mean the wing spar is is snapped yeah yeah, yeah. I mean I looked at the pictures uh, and uh, I mean it's uh, yeah it's, it's, it's a really significantly hard landing one of the things that we often have to do there is a uh, boroscope check after a hard landing because the engines the blades can come into contact with the case because of that landing so we have to check the engine and obviously this is all measured using sensors but um uh, yeah, I'm, I'm obviously can't comment on why exactly it happened, but it, I mean, it looks, you know, it's fairly self-explanatory. I think it's it's sad when this sort of thing happens, but uh, yeah, human factors questions. Are, I think there's a very good point in this. Yeah, someone said in the chat room, that's right. It's 26 year old, uh, just over 26 years old. This aircraft in question. This actually started off life. I've had a few owners, but it started off life with Alaska Airlines mm -hmm. uh, originally. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Lane Street in the chat room says um, <laughs> the pilot apparently had flashbacks to his carrier days. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for that, Lane. Yeah, I'm sure in the Navy, you know, I was just watching some videos of F-18s landing on, on aircraft carriers. Um, and it's pretty awesome that uh, <laughs> those guys can really plant it down. So maybe this was an old Navy guy or something like that. <laughs> yeah, so unfortunately, that, that will be scrapped. I think this is um, going to end up being... Uh, Perhaps some plane tags. I'll be one of you know, th this would be a great question for plane reclaimers, but something mm. like this, do they just scrap it right there on the airfield? Yeah, they, they can't fly it out. Do they just put it on a, you know, chop it up and truck it out or use it as a fire, a fire training uh, facility or something like that? That's what I would do. Mm. 
So Matt, uh, you've got the next story and uh, this is good for polar explorers. Polar explorers, okay. You'll just have to bear with me because I'm having a little bit of a, a slight glitch in the studio. There we go. We're back to where we are. Yes. So, uh, to, mm, yes. Uh, basically, what Carlos is saying here. So it's uh, so it's the air, um, airline something. I'm not really sure what the the uh, the source is actually there. But anyway, the headline. Uh, sorry, say that again, please, John. Airlinerds.com. Don't worry, the notes will be in the. It'll be in the show notes. It's fine. Uh, but the headline is: uh, Lufthansa will soon depart on its longest passenger flight with a po with polar explorers on board. So Lufthansa will be departing on the longest passenger flight in history uh, of that particular company, marking one of the most unique flights that the airline has ever carried out. On behalf of the Alfred, uh, I want to say Wegner. Apologies if that's wrong institute um of uh, institute of helmsholt uh, center for polar and marine research awi in bremerhaven um a lufthansa airbus a350-900 will be carrying will be flying 13,700 kilometers non-stop from hamburg to mount pleasant in the falkland islands the the flight time is calculated at around about 15 hours. Uh, there are 92 passengers booked for this charter flight. Uh, Lima Hotel 2574, half of which are scientists bound for Antarctica and the other half being the ship's crew for the upcoming expedition uh, with the Polar Stern Research Vessel. Uh, we're pleased to be able to support a polar research expedition during these difficult times. Uh, commitment to climate research is very important to us says Thomas Jan who is the fleet captain and project manager uh, in the Falklands uh, so uh, since the hygiene requirements for this flight are extremely high captain Rolf Uzat and his 17 member crew entered a 14 day quarantine last Saturday at uh, the same time uh, that the passengers did also so despite the crew restrictions for this particular flight 600 flight attendants applied for this trip says Rolf Uzat uh, the preparations for this special flight are immense they include additional training for the pilots via special electronic maps for uh, flight and landing as well as managing the kerosene available at Mount Pleasant military base for the return flight. The Airbus A350-900 is currently stationed in Munich where it will be prepared for the flight. In Hamburg the aircraft is loaded with additional cargo and baggage which has been extensively disinfected and will remain sealed until departure. Uh, besides the catering, there are additional containers for re uh, residual waste on board, uh, since this can only be disposed of after the aircraft arrives back in Germany. Uh, the Lufthansa crew includes technicians and ground staff for on-site handling and maintenance, who will quarantine after landing in the Falkland Islands due to government requirements. Uh, the return flight, uh, Lima Hotel 2575 is scheduled to depart for Munich on the 3rd of February and will be carrying the Polar Stern crew which had set out from Bramhaven uh, on the December the 20th to resupply the new Mayer Station 3 in Antarctica and must now be relieved. I mean this is a, 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 it's a, a fascinating story really isn't it? I mean it's uh, I think that tells its own story though doesn't it? Over 60 crew uh, volunteered for this 
this particular mission. I actually find oh six hundred was it? Sorry, uh, yeah, six hundred flight attendants um, applied for this trip. I mean that that's amazing, isn't it? Would you like? Is that somewhere you'd like to go, Matt? Antarctica. Um, I mean, I, I don't like the heat, so yeah, why not? Uh, okay. Right. I, I don't know how well I cope in. I don't know. I don't know how I'd feel in extreme cold either. So uh, I guess I should be a little less uh, snippy about these things. But uh, hey, no, I was, was going to say, say it never gets warm in the UK anyway, apart from like for two weeks a year. So you'd, you'd like to go to Antarctica, but would so given the opportunity to go, would you mind the fifteen-hour flight? Oh, I don't know. If they stick me in first, I might be all right. I don't know. <laughs> Hell, I knew you'd say that. Manage anything in business class, me. <laughs> well, it's not a full flight with only, what is it, 90-odd people on board. That'll be fairly... Um... Spacious, I think. Spacious. Word. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So they were, they were basically mentioning that they needed to bring engineers with them, which is... Mm. Uh, um, have you... Peter, have you had uh, ever come across any sort of special missions like this where you've had to sort of go out to a, 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 a I won't say strange location because that's perhaps not fair, uh, but a, a, such a remote location cool. where you where you're sort of involved in in the going out and coming back. Well, I'm, I'm not anything quite like this, um, really, to be honest. Often, um, I know you'll be familiar. They take a flying spanner with them, as you know, somebody who <laughs> is on board and uh, is there just in case. It really does depend on a number of factors. Um, I mean, I spoke to an engineer quite recently. I was doing a job and uh, he was saying his previous job was was really was quite boring. He had to, uh, I think it was North Canada, very far North Canada, not sure exactly where, but his job was to stop the aircraft from freezing. And that was really all it was, keeping the packs running and just inspecting the aircraft. Uh, but I, I would imagine they probably do have um, some engineers with them. Really depends on the maintenance facilities they've got. But down the line, it's it's well known that you can get often stuck in in situations where, you know, you you need a seal or something um, uh, to carry out a small repair. So um, so alas, nothing quite like that yet. Um, a few twists and turns. You get the occasional uh, seat jump seat um, shift you across from A to B. But um, other than that, no, not on Antarctic just yet. I mean, it must be one of the one of the the most difficult uh, trips to plan for, though, mustn't it? Because as you say, mm. I mean, uh, a, a single tiny seal could be the difference between an aircraft being able to mm. sort of take off again or not. I mean, it, and if you haven't got that with you, and you're a and you're a fifteen hour flight away from somewhere where you could get, I mean, mm. it's a it's quite quite the challenge to plan, I dare say. Yeah, it de- depending where you go, but some remote places. Um, I mean. Um, you know, um, there are very strict rules. You have to follow the manuals. But uh, let's just say I've heard of stories where uh, uh, compromises have had to be made. Right. You know, I, you, I be, you want to, don't want to be leaving <laughs> A350 sort of sat there so the uh, polar bears can do circuits. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, we're going to uh, a couple of things I just want to pick up in the chat room here. Uh, uh, Rick, Rick Bell is saying that, uh, Matt, I don't know what you're on talking about. The last time I went to the UK at an air show, I got crazy sunburn. I remember that well, actually, to be fair. I think <laughs> that was Farber. Now, what are you lot all sniggering about? Neil uh, Neil Lanwan says in the chat room, if, <laughs> I'm surprised Lane didn't bring this one up. Right. Oh, Neil says, uh, if you haven't got a seal, would a walrus do the job? Right. Possibly. Okay. Um, <laughs> I, do you know? Sometimes I sort of think we need we need a like a tumbleweed sound effect or something. You know, <laughs> just sort of like get something rolling across the. Uh, oh, poor rolling a dust. Yeah, absolutely. 
Oh, oh, Lion's, Lion's by, I thought, I wonder when Lion would, would uh, say that. Lion says, ever seen a leopard seal? Getting one to cop would be tough. Getting yeah. one to cooperate would be tough. Wow, yes. okay. Ugh. Right. So, Armando, <laughs> moving on to the next story and an important one for anyone who owns these certain aircraft. Well, anybody who owns, operates, rents, or flies in one of these aircraft, I think is as important, and it's going to affect a lot of people. Uh, the FAA recently published an airworthiness directive uh, covering many single-engine pipers that are either PA-28s or PA-32s. So that's the uh, Cherokees, Arrows, um, the Cherokee 6, uh, and some other ones. Uh, obviously, if you own one of these, go go check with the FAA. But the this... Uh, Airworthiness directive was prompted by a report of a wing separation caused by fatigue cracking in a visually inaccessible area of the lower main wing spar cap. Uh, it requires that the uh, calculating the factored service hours for each main wing spar to determine when an inspection is required, um, inspecting the lower main wing spar bolt holes for cracks and replacing any cracked wing spars. Um, this uh, Directive will require the installation of inspection panels close to the main wing spars to give technicians access to that area when searching for corrosion. Um, Piper revised its service information to add a minimum thickness dimension for the top inboard wing skin to include procedures for reapplying corrosion preventative compound if removed during the inspection. This article goes on. Um, okay, so let me uh, let me break that down. So the Piper uh, Cherokee Arrow uh, Cherokee Six. Are, it's a very common and very popular uh, training aircraft. In fact, uh, the three of us have all flown in one together. Um, we flew a PA-28 there in, in East Anglia. Um, so what happened here in, in 2018 down in Daytona Beach, uh, I can't remember if it was an Embry-Riddle bird, but it was a flight, a flight school down there. Um, actually, I think it was Embry-Riddle. Uh, the, the student pilot or the pilot was on a check ride um, so with a Czech airman and the wing actually separated. Um, it separated from, from the aircraft uh, near the airfield. And uh, upon inspection, it, 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 uh, they discovered that where the wing attaches to the fuselage, that wing spar essentially has uh, an upper and a lower bracket and the wing spar slides right in there. On airplanes that are high time airframes, um, it is possible that the lower portion of that wing spar uh, bracket, uh, the holes can elongate or cracks can develop, um, thus causing a potential separation of the wing uh, from the fuselage. Now, there's a lot of, uh, of math to be done here. If you personally own an aircraft uh, that falls into this directive and you, it has not flown for hire, then there's a, there's a formula that you can use to estimate the uh, because it's not subject to as much fatigue, you can estimate um, what the equivalent would be for an airplane that is used for hire, as in training or charter operations, something like that. Um, as far as cost in, in the proposed, uh, the notice of proposed rulemaking, they, they outline costs. It's around a thousand dollars, probably just for the inspection. Uh, if you have to replace a wing spar, I think that's going to be a pricey venture, but. Um, Everybody that operates one of these is, is very well aware that this was coming and, and uh, probably working on it right now for the, the next um, major inspection for the aircraft. This has to be done. Wow. Okay. Cool. Uh, before we move on to the uh, next uh, story, there's um, 
I was sent a photograph in the week via the uh, WhatsApp number that comes into the studio here, plus four four seven five seven two two four nine one six six. Now, you may recall, Armando, that um, we set somebody that you know quite well a, a bit of a challenge on the podcast uh, involving embarrassing photographs. So, I mean, I just wondered if uh, this particular photograph uh, means anything to you at all. Yep. Uh, well, I know who you reach out to, and I know who. Uh... I didn't reach out to anyone. This was volunteered. I should. Say. The, the, the caption, the caption that came with the photograph was uh, "embarrassing photo challenge accepted." Yeah, there you go. So you, it is, it is nearly impossible to embarrass me. I am actually very proud of this photo. Um, I was probably sixteen years old at this point. Um, the two gentlemen on the ends there, they were uh, adult, uh, what we call senior members in the Civil Air Patrol, uh, very good friends and mentors, along with John Jester, who sent in this photo, I'm sure. Um, the, so so the just, young... to, just describe the photo for those who are listening to, to the Yeah, show. so this, this was one of my last days uh, there at the at the unit in my civil air patrol, which is uh, essentially the air cadets there in the UK. And I had, uh, I believe just passed, uh, I was the cadet commander and I had just relinquished command to one of my very, very best friends who I still talk to regularly, um, Lee. And this uh, photo was taken uh, right, you know, that, that evening. But uh, that organization, you know, I'm always talking about the civil air patrol, but especially when I joined up at the age of 14 um, to the age of 18 when I joined the Air Force or 17 when I joined the Air Force, I, uh, that, that really shaped me into the person that I would be for the next uh, 30 years or so. So um, I thank good try at trying to embarrass me, but I'm actually pretty proud of that <laughs> picture. <laughs> uh, the main, genuinely, the main reason for, for wanting oh, the, to share it is it's such a nice photograph, to be fair. The biggest uh, difference is I had hair. Yeah, there is that. And glasses yeah. also as well. Yeah, hair, glasses. You know, I, <laughs> wow. I hadn't blossomed into the swan that I am today. Right. Okay. I mean, that's, that's, that's one way of putting it, I suppose. Uh, it's, okay. Wow. It's lovely. I, yeah. So moving on to the next story, Peter, this is uh, one all about an aircraft. I think you've seen a few of these mm. around. Yes. The Boeing 737 Max. Ooh. News. Uh, the why, head why, of... why does when anybody say that still fill me slightly with fear and nervousness? I don't. <laughs> um, the uh, head of Europe's aviation safety agency, EASA, who we all know and love, has said Boeing's 737 MAX plane will get final clearance to resume flying in Europe next week. Uh, the agency suspended all flights of the plane in March 2019 after two fatal crashes that have been attributed to the flawed flight control software. The modified plane has already been cleared for the resumption of flights in the US and Brazil and Canada. The ARSA's executive director, Patrick Kai, said a separate certification of the MAX 200 variant was likely to follow in coming weeks, allowing flights to resume before summer. In order to return to service, existing planes will now have to be equipped with new computer software, as well as undergoing changes to their wiring and cockpit instrumentation. Pilots will need to undergo mandatory training while each plane will have to undergo a test flight to ensure the changes have been carried out correctly. US regulators have set out similar conditions. Transatlantic routes with the 737 MAX, uh, for example, uh, Canada, 
in Canada, Air Canada and WestJet are planning to resume operations with the Boeing 737 MAX within the next two weeks. And now a close to seven hour flight from Canada to London Heathrow looks to be starting in March using the MAX aircraft. The Air Canada flight will initially operate from Halifax on Tuesday, Wednesday, Friday and Saturday. On the 25th, WestJet is selling tickets for its non-stop route from Halifax to London. The entire route will depend on the United Kingdom lifting its Boeing 737 MAX ban. If the flights go ahead as planned, Air Canada could be the first to fly the Boeing 737 MAX to London Heathrow following the type's ungrounding. At the time of the aircraft's grounding, only five 737 MAX aircraft were registered in the UK. Some info from BBC and simpleflying.com. So there we go. Have you had uh, much dealings with the, the MAX since it's been grounded, uh, Peter? Um, not um, a great amount. What I have done is I've seen um, people who have undergone all the training to be able to work on these aircraft, and it's particularly the engines, a leap, uh, 1B engine. Uh, so people kind of waiting, people have done the uh, boroscope training, simulator training, and, and, and so on. Um, so it's just this kind of sense that people are, are sort of waiting really with bated breath to see what happens. I was going to say, I think I was going to ask uh, Peter, when these aircraft have been stored up, which a lot of these, or most of these have been stored mm. up around the world, they have the covers put on obviously the front, yeah. the front of the, air, the uh, engines and stuff. When these eventually come, come back into service, um, mm. when the covers are taken out, do they still have to have a really intense sort of kind of inspection within the engine yeah. still? Even though yeah. Been... yeah, yeah, they yeah. do. It's... Um, it's typically a, a fairly extensive boroscope inspection. You're checking mm. seals, uh, lots and lots of stuff, actually. Um, and it is very, very expensive indeed uh, when these aircraft have been mothballed, which is why a lot of airlines uh, of late have been trying to keep their aircraft alive. Uh, in fact, in some respects, it's, it's cheaper to fly your aircraft at a loss than it is to leave them stored up. So, yeah, it's a fairly routine thing. Guys at Gatwick I've spoken to day in, day out, during lockdown, just uh, taking off covers, you know, checking engines. So, yeah, it's a, it's a lot of work, yeah. Just as a matter of interest as well, Peter, just quickly before we move on, how, how long does it take to do that inspection on just one engine? Um, okay, uh, it, it, it's a, that's a difficult question to answer. Typically, if you're doing a full inspection, depending on the size of the engine, about sort of six to eight hours, I would mm. say. Um, it really depends. Remember, some larger engines, sort of um, CFM, um, uh, not so much CFM actually, but uh, CF6 engines, the bigger ones, you can have 12, 13, 14 stages of high pressure compressor. And you've got to look at the front, top, bottom of the blades. Oh, look, an engine blade. Um, you've got to really, you've got to check the, uh, the tops and the bottoms of the blades. And the bigger blades take a little bit longer. Oh, the bigger blade. The bigger blades take slightly longer to check you've got to check everywhere root radius and uh, yeah it's pretty extensive so it takes quite a bit of time and of course that's compressor blades your turbine lpt blades can be like well, longer than i can put on the screen so yeah it's quite lengthy wow well we'll discuss more later i think peter yeah, looking forward to that sure. so next story is uh, coming to us from flight global and uh, some of you may have seen this one on the various news feeds over the course of the week and uh, this is, of course, all about the MC-21. 
and uh, this particular aircraft has had a slight issue with a runway excursion but uh, this comes to us as I said from Flight Global uh, and it also had a well this was during a, sig a simulated single engine failure so one of the flight test Urquhart uh, MC21-300 uh, has been involved in a runway excursion at Moscow's Zhukovsky during an exercise, I've probably ruined that completely, exercise simulating an engine failure. Images from the scene show that the aircraft, uh, 73051, the first example of the aircraft to fly, has come to halt on snow-covered ground. The depth of the snow is sufficient as well to bury the wheels and brush against the underneath of the twin jets Pratt & Whitney PW1400G engines, although none seems to have been ingested. One of the engines, the left-hand power plant, uh, appears to have had its thrust reversers deployed. Kurt says the aircraft had been conducting test, uh, tests involving emergency braking after a simulated failure of one engine when it rolled off the runway. The crew were not uninjured, which is always good, and no visible damage could be found. They say that no system failures were registered during the incident, the circumstances of which are being investigated. Five aircraft comprise the MC-21 flight test fleet, aircraft 73051, first flew towards the end of May 2017, and four of the twin jets are PW-1400G powered, while the fifth has the Russian-built Avad uh, Aviadivgatel PD-14 engine. Wow, I've not heard of those before, although I expect uh, Peter probably has. So, um, what do you reckon, uh, Peter? That uh, they're obviously testing uh, for a simulated mm. single engine failure. Um, mm. The thrust reverser, I think, as it says on the pictures, was deployed. Um, do you think just a mixture of speed and wow. uh, runway surface? Uh, it's a, a tricky one, really. Um, if you because if you want to bring an aircraft to a stop and one of the engines is gone, the idea in any aircraft is you have to control how much. Um, uh, yaw you're going to get or torque or whatever it is uh, particularly in things like turboprops it's really nasty um you know uh, when you go on the simulators for them you can hurt your neck with the amount of torque you get um, um difficult to tell really um clearly there's a, just an issue with sort of calculations and braking um uh, obviously if you're doing a simulated engine failure um procedure i don't know if they'd have switched the engine off altogether because if you want to really do it you you really want to test it without that engine running mm. um, um so it's difficult to be able to tell really um but um well you clearly need a, a very long runway but they really do beat these aircraft up when they test them and really test uh, everything but as i'm not very familiar with this particular line of aircraft and engines so uh don't know really do you think these, uh, these Russian aircraft, MP, these are a, a kind of competitor to the, uh, to the Airbus kind of um, aircraft? Mm, kind of, yes and no. I mean, mm. you, you know, um, you've got sort of Boeing and Airbus sort of head to head and you've got all of the different conglomerations and so on. They tend to be at the top, but I think they'd like to be, um, mm. certainly. Um, but um, they're kind of in a bit of a grey area, really, I, I think. But um, yeah, who knows? I mean, I certainly some of their newer aircraft are very similar when you look in a cockpit to what you see in the Airbus series, you know. Mm. Um, so, yeah. So, Matt, moving on to you for the next story. And uh, this is good news, I think, for people who love the uh, Dash 8Q400. 
Well, I mean, anything flying, frankly, is is good these days, isn't it? Let's be honest. So we're sticking with Flight Global for this particular source. And the headline is Flyby Q400s to be converted into firefighters for Conair. Um, uh, so Canadian aerial fighting specialist Conair Group has emerged as the buyer of 11 Bombardier Q400 turboprops, formerly operated by UK regional carrier Flybe. Uh, the aircraft had been the subject of a sale arranged through Skyworld Aviation, which had disclosed its appointment to uh, mar to market the vintage aircraft dating from 2007 to 2009 in August of last year. Conair Group says that it will start receiving them this month, stating that they will be converted to Q480 air tankers and join its firefighting fleet of 70 aircraft, which includes such types as the BAE Systems Avro RJ85 and the Convair 8580. Uh, Conair says that the uh, aircraft used for firefighting are often aging models bu built to outdated standards, which are then pressed into demanding service with the risk that they will develop metal fatigue and require expensive maintenance that uh, involves sourcing parts of limited availability. The acquisition of the Q400s for conversion is part of a strategy to replace the older and larger aircraft on in Conair's fleet with fast, manoeuvrable and fuel-efficient types. Conair says it examined 29 airframes before picking the Q400 as the conversion platform and has been modifying the type both at as the Q400AT dedicated air tanker and the Q400MR, which is the multi-role aircraft. The... Uh, Q four hundred eighty primary feature is a ten thousand liter retardant tank. A director of business development, uh, Jeff Berry, says that the turboprop is tactically flexible, capable of serving both the initial attack and sustained support roles. He also points out that the aircraft has strong support from the manufacturer with long-term parts and maintenance availability. De Havilland Canada Vice President for uh, Marketing and Sales, Philippe uh, Potusi, says that the versatile aircraft continues to be an ideal platform for special mission operations. Now, one of the things that amazes me with this firefighting thing, because it's like, I mean, uh, this is a slightly random, I know, but we, we treated ourselves to one of these sort of massive paddling pools for the garden during the summer. <laughs> and it took me nearly three days to fill that up. <laughs> How on earth long does it take for them to fill up? What did it say? It got a 10,000 litre tank in it. I mean... I, I guess they have other ways of filling it up. But, I mean, because these aren't the ones... Because, I mean, I have seen the things where they can scoop, can't they? Mm. Um, mm. I've seen some aircraft that have scooped to collect water. Presumably you wouldn't be doing that mm. with this particular variant. But, I mean, that must be... It's just minutes. It mm. only takes a few minutes. It's really? amazing to watch these things. Yeah, they hook up this massive uh, fire hose to it. The engines are still running. Um, I remember being out in Alamogordo, New Mexico, which is a, a maintenance base for Neptune fire aircraft, firefighting. And uh, they were ha flying some old Navy P2Vs and they'll come in, uh, drop the water or drop the fire retardant, uh, do a pattern, land. The truck is already waiting there. They just plug this hose in, they hook it up. Um, it only takes, you know, seven minutes or so. And then they're taxiing right back out it's amazing amazing operations yeah absolutely it's it's one of the it's one of the things i'd love to sort of see more of if you see what i mean i must admit it's not the first aircraft i would have thought of uh, for firebombing missions 
uh, Bombardier Q400. Well, you know, it's interesting, the Q400 or the Dash 8 and the Dash 7, which was the four-engine version back in the day, um, those aircraft were so well-built that they're actually used for quite a bit of different special missions. There's search and rescue variants. Um, there's these fire variants. There are um, special airborne uh, imaging, airborne sensor variants, um, as well as I, I believe some are, it, and it is a stole, a short takeoff and landing aircraft. Um, and, you know, like Peter was talking about, it's got, I don't, I don't know what engines are in it, I'm sure the chat room, <laughs> but, uh, but it's a turboprop uh, short takeoff and landing aircraft that comes in anywhere from, a, I think, about a 20-something seat configuration for the original 100s up to the, the Q800, which is close to 80 seats, I think. Uh, Lion, uh, Lions answered your question, Matt. They use 68 garden hoses. <laughs> only 68 wow okay I, I don't know how you got that figure but it's 68 so, um, so yeah any thoughts peter before we uh, move on um no i mean uh, i just <laughs> just uh, remember you know if you ever see water or fuel coming uh, from an aircraft when it's been drained off uh, yeah it can be quite dramatic we'll say that but it's a swimming pool basically yeah you know you think about the 747 and there's even i think the 747 there's some video floating around youtube isn't there it often comes up with this 747 uh, dropping water and uh, but it, you'd be amazed at the pressure of some of these yeah. pumps that they use mm. okay well we've got a few few uh, comments uh, from uh, rick bell actually in the chat room <laughs> Uh, here says, uh, hey Flyby, I used to fly those aircraft. Um, Republic Airlines used to fly those Q400s for United. Uh, when we got rid of them, we sent them over to Flyby. Mm. All right, okay. I mean, that's that's the ultimate in recycling, isn't it? Let's be honest. Um, and uh, I'm trying to think. Uh, yeah, send us all your aircraft. Absolutely. Alio comments also saying that's uh, so awesome to see the Q400 being put to great use. Would love to know what the registrations were at Flyby. I'm sure that mm. I'm sure that information can be found. Uh, from somewhere uh, uh, and uh, the next one uh, uh, oh, Pratt and Whitney. the PW150 yeah. engines uh, yeah. 150A engines sorry yeah. uh, which is uh, very cool it's uh, uh, sorry about that we're having a I say, having, having one of those days today where things aren't going quite according to plan in the studio today <laughs> well, Alan Loveday in the chat room is talking uh, he used to fly uh, uh, Dash 7s uh, in the UK and the Dash Seven is is one of my favorite aircraft. If you, it was just a, it was like a modern day Lancaster, a modern day B seventeen, just with those four, those four turboprops, and you could see it coming down. You know, I, I can imagine them flying into London City or some short airfield out there. Just a, what a cool airplane it was. Yeah, I just had to Google it. Actually, I couldn't remember what the Dash Seven looked like, so I can see it now. Yeah. Yeah, it's like a it's like a Q four hundred, but uh, with with a couple of extra um, engines on board. Yeah, in a sense and slightly slightly shorter, I think, as well. So moving on to the last story, Armando, this one's for you. Yeah, local news: NBCChicago.com. A tire fell off an aircraft, a small aircraft, shortly before its arrival at O'Hare International Airport Thursday evening. The tire ended up in a small neighborhood, according to authorities. So this flight, which had originated from Ironwood in Michigan's Upper Peninsula, that's if you do this thing, that's this one up here. Uh, it was operated by Boutique Air, a small regional commuter airline. 
None of the seven people on board, two crew members and five passengers sustained any injuries. At approximately 6.19 p.m., O'Hare officials were notified that the plane, which was landing at the time, was sending off a considerable amount of sparks from the landing gear on the left side. That was according to a statement from the Chicago Department of Aviation. Airport workers then determined that the left landing gear was missing. According to the Chicago Police Department, the tire was then discovered in the yard of a home at the 5500 block of West Leland Avenue. I'm, I'm sighing as you're reading that story because I can see the chat room at the moment. And Alex Robinson, you should be very ashamed with that. Uh, that's, <laughs> that's all I'm saying. Uh, <laughs> yes, this does sound wheelie bad. It does. Um. <laughs> Absolutely. It's just the most awful pun like ever. Anyway, yeah, do yeah, carry perhaps, on. <laughs> perhaps the pilots were just tired. Uh, oh. oh, that's Niels. Uh, okay, so uh, yeah, the NBC Chicago or NBC uh, Chicago.com has the video. They did some interviews. People heard a loud bang. Somehow a tire ended up. It, apparently, it fell with so much force. Hi, Benny. It fell with so much force that <laughs> it cracked the pavement. Um, and then the airplane, there's some ATC recordings of it landing on one of the main runways in Chicago. I don't think the pilots knew that the tire was missing. I think they went in for a normal landing because there was no uh, pre-coordination for any uh, emergency oh. services. Yeah. See, Alex Robinson is just, he's, they're all on fire, aren't they, this lot? Honestly, are they, they should be sitting in my seat, definitely. Yeah. Sounds like Matt is getting tired of these puns. Look, there we oh, go. Tread carefully. Oh, oh don't you oh. start. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Honestly, yeah. oh. I did. I, <laughs> I did think it was funny in one of the interviews that uh, uh, the, the, the person who lives in the house where the tire fell said, well, originally they thought it was a car tire that had, you know, coming off the car. But then they realized that uh, when they walked out, that the tire was smooth and therefore it must be from a different craft of sort. And I'm just thinking, I was like, uh, well, airplane tires aren't supposed to be smooth either. <laughs> they supposed to have some tread on them. Neil Lamont is saying that uh, Chicago is a hub airport after uh. all, which is uh, lovely to hear. Uh, Masher, I'm rather Ra Masher's comment, I'm rather finding amusing. It has to be said. Uh, she's saying that so we had a door last week. Now a tire. Keep going, and we'll have a home build in no time. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely oh is this what we've got to do this is what we've got to do now each week guys we've got to get a story that involves a, a random piece of aircraft R right okay it's well, like the hopefully, most hopefully we have trouble finding them but i i don't think we will right okay <laughs> now i do actually have some are we going to play the audio that i think because we've got we've got some um yeah we've got some audio haven't we this is yes. from vasim and this is audio of the event. It's only just over a couple of minutes long, but it uh, does cover the, the whole incident. Does it? BTK-35, O'Hare, Darwin, 260, 19, 24. Stop to departure, runway 22 left, runway 28 center, clear to land. I do love these big gaps, especially when, you know, ideal for radio. <laughs> 
Mayday, mayday. Yeah, absolutely, something like that. Yeah, okay. I think we're gonna, I think we're, we're going to abandon that. I think because I'm just concerned about the large gaps uh, in there. But uh, yeah, I mean, you get the idea. Basically, a tire fell off. Um, that's the thing, and uh, it turns out that our marvelous audience um, should all be stand-up comedians. So that's great news. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh no, what's that? Sounds like oh, we'll need a no. slick operation to get. On uh, to get those stories. Blimey. I, I, anyway. I just, I, I mix, you know, sometimes, you know what, listening to this is so much better than uh, watching it. Uh, <laughs> anyway, so we are going to move hang on. Hang around for a PA28 long enough and you'll get a wing, is something that we're really chipping in next. There. Oh my good God. <laughs> anyway, moving on to the next part of the show, we're going to move on to the special interesty part for everyone. This is something that the everyone special what loves. now? Special interesting part. This is a special, special part of the show. <laughs> I know. This is God, you a... really have been up early, haven't you? I know. This is a segment <laughs> segment that has been very popular, I will say, for anyone. And if you uh have loved these segments as we all have, don't forget you can watch these as well uh, as their own special little entity on YouTube. So make sure you look out for the plain truths. But uh, we have a plain truth for you this week uh, with Matt and Captain Al. And this week they are talking about the all important question that we all want to ask how to start an airplane. <laughs> Welcome to another Plain Truths, and this week we're going to be talking about how to start an aircraft. Joining me, as always, is the legend that is Captain Al. Hi, Captain Al, how are you? I'm very well, thank you for asking. A very good evening to you, too. <laughs> thank you very much. Now, right, let's, let's get straight to it. So this is a very strange sort of question, I suppose. It sounds very simple to you, I know. Uh, anybody like me who's driven a car or a coach or whatever will know that you have a key that you put in the ignition, and if it's a diesel, you have to wait for the light to go out and all that kind of thing. Now, I, I'm assuming it's nothing as simple as that uh, in regards to firing up an aircraft. So um, shall we start sort of loosely with like sort of GA and then work our way into the, the more commercial uh, liners so uh, how, how does sure. one go about starting the engine okay so um, on the Piper and GA aeroplanes um, there are a couple of different ways of starting the aircraft so on the PA 28 it's very very similar to a car there is indeed a key and an ignition switch uh, you turn the key it engages the starter motor and all things being well the aircraft will start and you just release the key um, on some, you put the key to set the ignition to on, press a button, same process. Aircraft engine of that sort of ilk have two separate ignition systems, you like. Uh, quite archaic, really. They're magnetos, so nowhere near as sophisticated as your sort of electronic ignition in a modern car, but far simpler by design, so therefore by inference, far less to go wrong. <laughs> Always uh, a good thing. <laughs> yeah, older GA type aircraft don't have an electric starter motor. So things like a Piper Cub and uh, older sort of war type aircraft, they would have a very simple procedure where you turn the ignition on and you spin the propeller by hand. Uh, so spin the prop and in exactly the same way as kind of bump starting your car uh, if you got it right then the engine would fire up uh, a couple of things uh, make sure you get back in the aeroplane before it starts moving of its own accord there'll <laughs> oh, wow. be many many accidents of that um, 
Also remember to take your hand out of the way before the next blade of the propeller removes your fingers. Gosh. Uh, then we can get into some of the military type aeroplanes, uh, again, still relatively small, that the compression of the engine is a bit too much to turn the propeller by hand. So they would have something called a starting cartridge, which is just basically a small explosive cartridge that goes into the engine. Uh, that cartridge gets fired, releases a sort of blast of air, if you like, which is enough to turn over the engine and start it. So that's the, the simple GA-ish type, smaller aeroplanes. Once we get onto the likes of turboprops and small jets, we have a slightly different way of starting the aircraft. Again, we use the aircraft batteries or possibly an external ground power cart. And in very simple terms, the electrical generator part of the engine turns into a starter motor for the starting process. So uh, you run the generator backwards as you were, uh, as it were. So you give the generator electricity and then it converts that into a rotary motion, turns over the engine and it starts and then automatically changes back to being a generator. That's all fine and dandy. Now on to airliners. Um, <laughs> big, big jet engines um, generally don't have big generators sufficient to be able to turn the engine over because that's weight and we want to try and save weight. So how do we start a big jet engine? Well, we use air. Now, wow. okay. we have a source of air or pneumatic on aircraft. That's the auxiliary power unit, that little jet engine tucked away usually in the tail that has two functions. It can produce air for air conditioning and engine starting and also electricity so that we have our own independent source of electricity because the batteries aren't going to last very long, obviously. No. So we use the air out of the auxiliary power unit to turn over the engine. And uh, once we put the fuel and the ignition in, the engine eventually becomes self-sustaining and therefore we don't need the air. That's all fine and great, unless the auxiliary power unit is unserviceable. So what do we do then? Well, then we have something called a ground air cart, a puffer, and it's basically like a little APU on a set of wheels, and it produces sufficient air. You plug in a hose to the bottom of the aeroplane, and um, yeah, just plug in some air and start the engine. And, uh, and, there's a bit of a process, but it's, uh, it's as simple as that. So, and, and the air essentially is sort of directed in such a way that it hits the, the blades, therefore rot rotates the engine. The same, so it's not entirely dissimilar to where you were sort of moving the prop by hand, if you see what Yeah, I mean. except that it's... it goes into the inner part of the engine rather than just being sort of pushed into the front of the right. engine. So it's not like blowing into the front of the engine. It, it goes further into the engine uh, because if you imagine a, a jet engine, isn't really how you see it so that the the core of the engine isn't at the front what you see at the front with the big fan is the end result of the whole right. process okay. yeah um so yeah the air goes into the earlier stages of the engine rather than the final stage but yes that's exactly what happened the air goes in spins the compressor around uh put the ignition on put some fuel in and there we go 
So, Lighter. Uh, so in in the cockpit. So looking at looking at it from like you know the, the business end of the aircraft where you're yeah. all sat, sat in there. I mean, is is it uh, as, as simple as you you put like a key code or a key card or something in or or a, I mean, are they are they literally anybody who knew what they were doing can get it? There's there's no you don't need a specific key or anything to to, to fire the thing up. You could just literally uh, anybody right. can get in it and start. It's yeah, like a, so, you know, press start to go type thing. Okay, so there are no keys. So right. <laughs> on on airliners of uh, sort of you know a320 size etc there is no door key and there is no key to start the engine uh, so yes you could if you're able to gain access to the airplane very very easily get in it and start it and it is literally a case of from cold getting in the aircraft producing some sort of electricity supply, which will either be the batteries, the internal batteries for the aircraft, or some ground power. Uh, you then need to start the auxiliary power unit, which is a, just a, basically a case of pressing one button, which is the master switch, and then pressing the start button. And the start process is entirely automatic. Once the APU is up and running, which takes about a minute or so. Right. Its generator comes on automatically online. Uh, the rest of the aircraft will kind of power up. So initially when you're on batteries only or uh, only certain systems are powered. So now you've got the APU up and running. To start the engines, all you need to do is to configure the pneumatics. So just turn the APU bleed air on. That puts APU bleed pneumatic pressure into the systems. And then it's simply a case of turning one rotary selection to start and then turning an engine master switch on and the start process will be entirely automatic air is put into the engine depending on the design of the engine it may well just sort of dry motor just turn the engine over without any fuel initially to ventilate it the igniters will go on so these are just very simple uh like glow plugs like you have Obviously, they cost a bit more than ones on, a, on your Ford Escort, yeah. <laughs> uh, but they're just like glow plugs. Um, uh, so the igniters go on. There is a there is a, like a spark, if you like. Um, and then after a period of time where the engine has been turned over to a sufficient speed, and again, this varies from engine to engine type, fuel is put in. And if you've got a combination of air, fuel, and an ignition source, something will catch fire deliberately <laughs> and then more fuel, <laughs> yeah, more fuel goes in until such point that the engine becomes self-sustaining. So it doesn't need that external air anymore. The igniters are turned off because, you know, just like a, a diesel car, if you like, once the car is started, you don't need any continuous source of ignition. Mm -hmm. um, and there you go. It's up and running. It's up and running. Okay. Now, uh, th th we move on to questions that we've had. Uh, this question has been asked by several people, actually, uh, in the past about uh, that. It's very specific to uh, Airbus, uh, from what I understand. Um, but somebody's actually been asking, what is that dog barking slash soaring of MDF sound on Airbus aircraft that you sometimes get during engine start? Okay. So it's a really good question. And yes, if you're sat towards the middle of the cabin when we start uh, the engine uh, for the first time, you will hear this noise. And it's got nothing really to do with the engine, but the noise is called by the PTU, the pressure transfer unit, 
which is a device as part of the hydraulic system. So on the A320, there are three hydraulic systems. And the two primary ones, the green and the yellow, have the PTU, if you like, sat between them. And it allows pressure from one system to be transferred to the other system without transferring any fluid. So it's quite clever, really. There's no fluid transfer, but it transfers pressure. And when you start the first engine, that PTU goes through a self-test cycle. And that's the, the noise that you hear is the PTU running. Now, these days, you'll quite often hear the PTU running when we are operating on one engine, taxiing out or taxiing in, because the green hydraulic system is powered by engine number one, and the yellow hydraulic system is powered by engine number two. Typically, we taxi on engine number one only. So if engine number two is deliberately shut down, there is no engine-driven pump for the yellow system. So the PTU transfers pressure from the green to the yellow, which is why you hear that noise. It's just a pressure transfer unit running. So that is it. It kind of goes back to the fact that when Airbus originally designed the aeroplane, they didn't consider that anybody would need to taxi around on one engine as a matter of normality. Right. Of course, roll on uh, environmental monitoring, cost of fuel, etc. It is just simply a case that that is a, a byproduct of taxiing on one engine. Now, the question I thought you were going to ask me is if you have an airliner like an Airbus or a Boeing, do you get a key? <laughs> well, as I said, there are no locks, there's no ignition lock, no door lock. But when you take delivery of a brand new one, the manufacturer will give you a key. Oh, it's a ceremonial, ceremonial thing. Key. Right, okay. Um, it doesn't fit anything. Right, okay. <laughs> um, but, uh, yes, you get a key. Now, one last thing before you hit me with another question. <laughs> you may know that on uh, certain engined uh, A320 family aircraft, there have been incidents where the engine cowls have come off in flight because they weren't locked properly. Oh. A couple of carriers have had this. There's been some various photos. So now uh, that particular engine, the IAE I -E 2500 engine, actually has keys that lock the cowls. Oh. So the keys are kept on the flight deck. Right. So there are two keys because there are two engines. So you could argue that there are <laughs> keys, but they're not for the doors and they're not for the starting of no, the engines. Okay, <laughs> there we go. And on that bombshell, as they say, that is a great place to end. Thanks, Captain Al. It's my pleasure. If you want to take your knowledge to the next level, sign up for a subscription at the A320 Lounge. Our online video courses combine whiteboard-style lessons with full failure demonstrations shot in 4K in state-of-the-art simulators using a professional production team. Go into your next simulator session with confidence, having seen failures run in real time and with the background knowledge to answer any questions from your instructor. To get more information and to sign up, visit a320lounge.com.
There we go. Ah, I, do you know what? I'm very much looking forward to. I've got, I've got a. I think a end of the month. I've got some more recording. I think with Captain Al. They're always an awful lot of fun. So it's uh, oh, perhaps it's Tuesday. I'm being told in my <laughs> better look um, at my diary. I have to say actually, yeah. actually, Matt, on that, the, the, the series of these you're doing with uh, with Al are great, and that we have had some really, really great feedback from yeah, we have. listeners about this, including my father. Yeah, yeah, right. um, yeah. But I will say as well before we move on, if if you do, if you're listening to the show, either watching the show now live or you're listening to the show as an audio podcast if you have any subject at all that you may be rattling around in the head thinking about certain aspects of uh commercial commercial aviation, aviation, absolutely that yeah. you might be thinking you yeah. know how does this don't, do don't this? mention how the gray stuff because he'll he'll don't, he'll he'll, <laughs> he'll shut down immediately have, <laughs> please do get in contact absolutely uh, with us here at the show yeah. and uh, matt will uh, put that down absolutely as i say we've got a recording session sort of very very soon early early part of next week so uh, make sure you get in touch podcast at plain talking uk.com podcast at plain talking uk.com uh, you can send it to us via whatsapp that's plus four four seven five seven two two four nine one six six that's plus Plus four four seven five seven two two four nine one six six. Or why not? If you are watching some of the videos, you can even leave a comment or a question on the videos in YouTube as well. So uh, do, do make sure that you do that. And most of them, I think uh, I've got two or three that I still need to upload. But most of them are also available as an audio podcast. If you would like to download that, all you've got to do is search for Plain Truth, and you'll find Ooh. them in there. So there you go. If you want to if you want to just listen to the audio version instead. So we are going to hand things uh, over now to our registered military expert. Registered. The show. <laughs> and uh, so it gives me wow. great pleasure. To, that doesn't sound right. <laughs> to, uh, to hand over control to Armando. So Armando, over to you. Yeah, that's right. I just received my card in the mail from the American Association of Military Talkers. Excellent. <laughs> I am registered with them. The dues are astronomical. Anyway, Matt, if you're ready, hit the button. <laughs> This first story comes to us from our friends over at Flight Global. Canberra has selected the Boeing AH-64 Echo Apache Guardian to fulfill its armed reconnaissance helicopter requirement from 2025. The decision will see the Apache replace the Airbus, uh, Airbus helicopter's Tiger, which is currently in service with the Australian Army. This new ARH capability will strengthen Australia's armed reconnaissance force to better shape our strategic environment and deter actions against our national interest, according to Defense Minister Linda Reynolds. Defense considered a number of helicopters against the criteria of proven ability, maturity, and off-the-shelf operating systems. The Tiger Replacement Project, designated Project Land 4503, calls for 29 ARHs to replace the Canberra, uh, Canberra's 22 Tigers. Although the Tiger is now performing well in the Australian Army service, the program suffered uh, years of issues before stabilizing. The Department of Defense uh, notes that lessons learned from the Tiger and other acquisitions have, uh, quote, informed a strategy to seek a proven, more mature ARH replacement capability, end quote. Uh, in addition to Boeing, the requirement attracted interest from Bell with the AH-1 Viper. I can't believe they're still making that. Uh, the Airbus helicopters also pitched an upgrade to, to the existing Tiger fleet, as well as the acquisition of seven additional examples, possibly from uh, one of the types European operators. Uh, the Apache Guardian is the most lethal, most survivable, and lowest risk option 
uh, meeting all of defense capability uh, through life, su life support, security, and certification requirements, according to Ms. Reynolds. Uh, by pursuing a proven and low-risk system offered by the Apache, defense will avoid the ongoing cost and schedule risk typically associated with developmental platforms. So another big win for the Apache. That aircraft has been flying uh, for many, many years. It's flown in every major conflict um, for, for many, many uh, countries, uh, different armed forces. And it uh, looks like it's going to have a, a great future over the next at least uh, 2040s, 2050s, that's what the Australian uh, uh, Defense Department is looking at, at it. Uh, they're, they're, they're actually looking at, at the Apache for reconnaissance capability for up to 2050 and beyond. It's going to be another one of those B-52s, isn't it, uh, Armando? They're, they're going to be flying Apaches when they're like 100 years old. Yeah, you know, and it's interesting, helicopters, right, because they defeat physics and they just, you know, beat the air into submission. But, you know, we still have made a whole quartz, that sort of thing. Yeah, <laughs> they're basically just flying carpets with a lot of moving parts. Um, <laughs> now, you know, the Huey is still flying in many air forces and, and many different organizations here in the U.S. and abroad. And the Huey has been around since early Vietnam, uh, you know, the 60s, probably the 50s. Um, so, yeah, it's it's amazing that a lot of these helicopters, as complicated as they are, are outlasting many other airframes. Yeah, actually, Ma Mars, Peter. I was, I was going to say, Mars High in the uh, chat room is saying the Apache is an amazing copter. Uh, Peter would know, actually, because uh, Peter will know this. We get uh, regular visits, don't we, from uh, the guys at Watersham here in uh, We do. In yeah. Local, yeah. Yeah, yeah. There's, um, and obviously, I'm a little bit biased, but uh, I do, do like it when uh, you hear the sound and uh, the aircraft come over flying to local airfields such as um, Beckles and Norwich, Norfolk, you know, is a good place, training zone. But uh, yeah, we get quite a lot of uh, of traffic around the area and it's uh, pretty dramatic and uh, all power to their elbow. So it's all good. So the next story, this one comes to us from somewhere that's only literally an hour's drive from where me and Matt are. Uh, this is from the DVID's hub.net. Uh, and uh, this is Royal Air Force Lakenheath in the UK. The 492nd Fighter Squadron completed a three-day agile combat ex uh, empl employment exercise at uh, Royal Air Force Lakenheath on the 13th of January. Four F-15E Strike Eagles and uh, a 14 Airmen maintenance team with limited support equipment participated in a simulated deployment to a Ford operating base on the north side of the RAF Lakenheath airfield. Airmen and aircrew underwent cross-discipline training, learning new skill sets from their peers in other career fields. Uh, they said we had a subject matter expert from each career field, and we were all learning and executing each other's duties, said Captain David Spiker, uh, 492nd Fighter Squadron F-15E pilot. He said it helps everyone gain an appreciation of each other's jobs and make cooperation more successful in the future. The ACE concept aims to develop airmen who are adept on in disciplines outside of their normal day-to-day 
duties. Exercises like this contribute to the evolution of a force of multi-capable airmen and aircrew, improving missions readiness and increasing capabilities in less than optimal environments. As part of the training to accomplish the mission at a forward operating base, two of the aircraft landed at RAF Lucas Airfield in Scotland on Monday the 11th of January for refueling. Uh, the, uh, the visit of two 48th Fighter Wing F-15s was a great example of a well-planned and proficiently executed mission, said Squadron Leader Barry Flynn, Officer Commanding Lucas Division Airfield. Uh, the U.S. Air Force planners did an exceptional job of keeping Lucas for informed of requirements and timings, which ensured a smooth running operation. This visit is uh, hopefully the first uh, step of a friendship between the 48th Fighter Wing and Lucas Airfield. Agile combat employment reduces the personnel footprint required to deploy forces on short notice or no notice operations, ensuring Liberty Wing airmen and air crews are postured to respond across the spectrum of military operations. Utilizing these concepts improves mobility and inoperability with partners and allies and ensures the US Air Forces in Europe are ready to deliver combat air power when called upon, which I think they thought they were doing this week when they were buzzing over head um just overhead well not far from norwich actually where i was driving uh, there was uh, two of these uh, f-15s that were uh, enjoying themselves together doing rather interesting maneuvers in the sky which uh, made for quite uh, good viewing because we did actually have one day this week where it was a nice clear day <laughs> yeah just the one yeah, yeah. just this the one is, yeah this is this is one of my favorite things about uh military life is doing an exercise on the base which you're stationed pretending to be austere environment but if you look outside your tent as you're digging into your meal ready to eat which has a shelf life of seven years and you look on the other side of the fence and you can just barely make out the sign for the tesco and the marks and spencer uh as you as you dig into your processed cheese and you're like man if we could only jump that fence <laughs> Um, no, this is, this is great, especially uh, going up to Lukers in the middle of January doesn't sound fun for anybody. Uh, I feel like that's where uh, Game of Thrones is probably filmed. Uh, that's where winter is. But uh, yeah, this is very important. And sometimes, you know, you just have to bite the bullet and put on your gas mask and do an exercise, uh, you know, within, within eyesight of, a, of an M&S or something like that. Now, the next story, Matt, this one is for you. And it surprised me because I thought the Russians were actually quite good at keeping things incredibly secret. <laughs> uh, right. OK. Famous last words, as they say. Uh, mm. Yes, there, there we go. This is uh, on the aviationist.com website. And uh, as I say, we this is the story that we refer to where, believe it or not, I actually remember a military story. And it says, uh, suspect of thief of radio equipment from Russia. Uh, now, is that II-80 doomsday? Illusion. Illusion 80. Yeah, it's an IL-80. Mm. IL-80 uh, doomsday plane is arrested. So on December the 7th, 2020, many of you may remember that it reported that the news that thieves had broken into an IL-80 uh, Max Drome and stolen radio equipment from the plane undergoing maintenance at uh, uh, Tag Taganrong. Um, oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> okay uh, you can just fly by it yeah okay none an, of us an will know any difference somewhere uh in 
in the Rostov region, Russia. Signs of a break-in on the cargo hatch had been noticed during a routine inspection on the 4th of December and the subsequent check had revealed that radio equipment described as 39 radio stations and five electronic boards are missing from the plane. The investigation has eventually led to the arrest of a man currently held uh, in uh, Taganrog Jail, uh, accused of uh, committing theft from the aircraft. His lawyer um, told TASS news agency that the suspect is being taken into custody uh, even though the court arrest decision was appealed. Uh, for the moment, it's still not clear if other people were involved in the theft of the equipment worth more than 1 million rubles. That's around about 14 K's worth of US dollars, uh, even though it seems more likely. Uh, military expert Reserve Colonel Andre uh, Koshkin said to the URA.ru that the theft was probably committed by people working on the aircraft at the facility. It also seems reasonable to believe that, a, that this was planned operation and the IL-80 was not just a target of opportunity. Either case, uh, the somewhat bizarre incident still needs to be fully explained considering the high profile of the aircraft uh, here's why um, from yeah I'll jump I'll jump in there and save you some time okay. uh, Matt basically this airplane serves as an airborne command post and we talked about this a couple of weeks ago when this first uh, broke in the news um, I think that was episode thir- uh, 342 uh, it's a it's a very uh, advanced platform and it is designed for continuity of government. It is so in the in the event of a either a nuclear attack or a significant disaster, um, the the government is able to jump onto this airplane and basically run the country. So at least here in the United States, it is one of the most protected airframes. We have uh, the E-4B, which is a 747. Um, so it was very surprising that that right off the bat that this that somebody even pulled this off. Um, and then why are they stealing not 39 radios from this aircraft? Um, it's a, it's good. It's good. It makes a good plot for a spy movie, right? <laughs> Actually, Cap, Cap, Captain Cruz is saying uh, IL-80, huh? So the the uh, Lucian IL-80. Just imagine uh, a ripoff of an A340, an Airbus A340, with a huge, and I mean huge, lump on top of the actual yeah, it's a, uh, it's fuselage. An IL, it's a heavily modified IL-86. Mm. Is what produces an IL-80. Maybe yeah. it was an optical illusion. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it's, it's still a ripoff. It's a Russian of an A340. illusion. It's a Russian illusion. Mm. Oh, dear. Yeah, brace yourself. I believe there's some puns <laughs> now appearing in the chat room. Uh, I'm sure John will pop those up on screen as we go. This could be a, an experience. Uh, Richard Adams, uh, great one there. Vlad Force One. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> uh, Lanes, Lane Street says, does it have a stall for Putin's horse? R- right. Okay. <laughs> but, you know, I'm sure if he wants a stall for one, I'm sure they can install it. Oh yeah, <laughs> it, it is a it is a bizarre looking plane, and it is a it is an absolute rip off of the three forty. But anyway, moving on to the next story, Peter. Uh, yes, got, uh, the next one. So uh, from uh, Times of San Diego dot com, we've got some information here. 
Miramar Marines prepare for winter fury exercises across Southern California. So the third Marine aircraft wing based at Miramar announced it is preparing for a major exercise this week known as Winter Fury. The exercise will be conducted from January the 19th to February the 19th at training locations across Southern California, California, Arizona and the coastal islands. Winter Fury will test the third MAW's ability to fight a near peer adversary by employing all of the aircraft in its inventory, including the F-35 Lightning II stealth fighters, the AH-1Z Viper gunships, the UH-1Y ooh, Venom utility helicopters, the FA-18 Hornet jets, CH-53E Super Stallion transport helicopters, one for Putin's horse maybe, MV-22B Osprey tilt rotors and KC-130J Super Hercules tankers. During the exercise, Marines will conduct long-range strikes, deploy and support troops, transport artillery, and provide logistical support to Marines on the ground. Additionally, the wing will work closely with the Navy to conduct expeditionary advanced base operations, including the establishment of forward aiming and refueling points. So, interesting stuff, eh? I'm with Lane Street in the chat room on this one. Nothing says winter fury like an exercise in Southern California. <laughs> It may at it may at night at two in the morning drop down to about sixty five degrees Fahrenheit. So okay, I'm what, sure they're getting there. I'm sure they have their parkas on and all their gloves and everything. What's that in English, Matt? Uh, don't ask me. <laughs> <laughs> what is that about fifteen C something like that? I don't even know. I can, yeah, say, I can say I, I went. I went. I was taken to a mathematics museum by by one of my well by by my best friend, and I was I was left in the child's play area. So that gives you an idea of uh, how good I am at maths. Yeah, <laughs> but you, I'm but a, you're good I'm at tech. Gonna, uh, uh, yeah, of of well, after this show, no. But anyway, that's <laughs> yeah. I would be willing to debate uh, the effectiveness of a winter fury exercise if you can go surfing after work. Mm. Surfing yeah. after work, right? Yeah, Southern okay. California, they still surfing out there, San Diego, area, right. Miramar. Okay, yeah. I mean, to be fair, they're probably surfing in temperatures to which those in Southwold do like you know, it's it's going to be 20 degrees warmer anyway, I dare say, because it's <laughs> yeah. just the North Sea is not uh, not the warmest place in the world. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. People still going there on Christmas Day morning, though, they do, absolutely, on... yeah. Indeed, and Boxing Day. Oh, don't, don't. Yeah. Mental. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> so moving on to the next glorious part of the show, because uh, it's one that a lot of people have been looking forward to and loving as well, our special interview with George Lee. And uh, this is uh, going to be part four of the segments. So, George, the role of the Phantom then was uh, quite a multi-role aircraft, a recce, uh, air to ground, as well as air defense. Uh, did you practice all those arts? No, not really, Nick. Uh, air defense only to a certain degree, uh, I, I would say. More emphasis on air to ground and, of course, reconnaissance never, never really featured at all, frankly. There was a specialist uh, reconnaissance squadron at Coningsby, 41 squadron. And they went around with their super 
sophisticated, very expensive reconnaissance pods strapped underneath, and that, that was their business. So, no, there wasn't, um, the, the main emphasis, I guess, was on, on the handling, exploring the envelope to, to extremes, uh, maneuvering air-to-air -air combat and, and air-to-ground was where the main emphasis was at. And it was in the low-level, high-speed environment that I, 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 felt, I felt I excelled. That's the area that I felt most comfortable in, and the, certainly the one I enjoyed the most, absolutely magnificent. So when the course was all over and I learned that I was going to be posted to Sixth Squadron, I was delighted because Sixth Squadron, of course, well, remained at Coningsby, not, not, the, not Utopia, but never mind. Uh, Sixth Squadron was there at the end of one hangar. And uh, no, it, 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 I, I was really very happy and moved across uh, to Sixth Squadron, whose role, of course, was basically uh, ground attack. So that was the environment that I flew in on my first tour. But more than that, and this is where it got really interesting and again, extremely challenging for a first tourist, which of course I was, that is that the specialist role of Six Squadron was night ground attack. And now night that, ground attack. Night, wow. night ground attack. Now that sounds easy to say, it is easy to say, but when you're out there in the dark, uh, it had its moments, shall we say. <laughs> it had its moments. And uh, the regular range we used for night ground attack work against a ship target was in the wash, and that was at Waynefleet. So many happy memories there. But also we used to go off in uh, occasionally in, in a five aircraft formation. There'd be a two uh, flare aircraft right up the front. Uh, they carried the Lepus flare, however many million candle power they were. And the rest of us, the bombers, the attackers, would be stretched out in radar trail. So we'd go all the way up. I mean, it's night and we had basic equipment, so we're not talking about serious low level uh, from memory would be around about 1500 feet something like that for the transit and we went up to a range in uh, Yorkshire called Otterburn and we went against what they called technically an airfield target. Now the reality was that this airfield was a cloud strip of dirt. <laughs> that was it yeah. in rolling hills with no ground illumination, no aids whatsoever. And the, the flare ship would, would all run in from, from the sea, that the flare ship would pull up, release the Lepus flare, which would come down under its own parachute and give this big circle of light. And then we bombers would come along in behind, offset, pull up, tip in, and start trying to visually acquire this cloud strip, which was very, very hard crazy looking back. But anyway, yeah, we, we had some interesting moments. Another one was out on the sea range in Jerby in the Irish Sea. We were going against a sea target at night and nobody had actually bothered to tell us that at least three quarters of the sea target was actually submerged. <laughs> <laughs> so we were trying to visually acquire this tiny bit of a target sticking up above the waves and I do recall uh, a golden rule we had was that the back seat of the navigator he remained heads heads down for safety reasons 
but one particular crew, the navigator started raising himself up from the ejection seat, peering over the shoulder of the pilot, trying to help the pilot visually acquire. And then when he glanced back in and saw, recover, <laughs> the altimeter was somewhat <laughs> below where you would want ideally and the aircraft got overstressed. But anyway, yeah, some exciting moments. Night ground attack for a first tourist was just amazing, absolutely. I bet. Now, your gliding has been put on hold for a while, but despite that, it seems you're able to make considerable progress in competition flying in the Four Counties Club, am I right, at Spitalgate? Four Counties Club at Spitalgate, that's correct. Uh, Spitalgate, yeah, the, the, the airfield was, it was a grass airfield just south of Grantham, and they had a pretty reasonable club fleet, so nearly all my weekends were spent over there, had a caravan and Marin and our little daughter at that stage all came along, introduced to the world of gliding and everything that goes with it. So I, I carried on with cross-country flying and um, yes, competition work. And I do recall a wonderful flight I had, which was a five, at least for that time, it was actually, I actually set a UK record. It was a 520 kilometer out and return from Spitalgate down to Yeovil and back. In a, in a standard label, which was one of the first of a trio of fiberglass gliders, which meant quite a performance leap from the old wood and doped fabric machines, that's for sure. So that, that, that was very si satisfying. And uh, yes, the competition flying, that bug had been set before. And then I finally got to win my first nationals. That was in 1974, flying a Kestrel 19 at at Dunstable. So that set, I was now moving on and I guess my name was beginning to seriously get noticed. So the British had a voting system for selecting the team to represent the country in world gliding championships. And it was, yeah, it, it was a voting system. Other countries such as Germany use a strictly mathematical position based on performance and position, but the British being different and a little bit eccentric. No, we stick with the, the voting. Never mind the bribery and corruption possibility. <laughs> I joke. Uh, so I got selected for uh, the pre-Worlds, which was to be in Finland the following year, 1975. So I went over there with uh, the same glider, Kestrel 19, and the same crew chief and Marin, and off we went over to Finland. And uh, I managed to win that pre-world competition, but it had to be said that none of the big names were actually present for that event. So I was under no illusions about uh, what that meant for the following year for the world championships themselves. As a matter of interest, the weather during that pre-world year was exceptional. It was astonishingly good and the organization, I was flying in the open class, that's no restriction on wingspan or any other design feature. They really didn't know what to do with us, frankly, as far as tower setting was concerned. So we were grossly under set pretty well every day. Sorry, perhaps you could just take a moment to explain to the audience uh, how these con competitions are judged and, and measured, conducted? Sure, it's all changed considerably now, of course, but in those days we used to carry fairly basic cameras, which were mounted on the side of the canopy, rubber sucker sort of thing, and just a remote shutter release. 
And then we also carried uh, barographs, which was a pressure sensitive instrument, which was stowed down the back and sealed up and signed. And it measured pressure and the needle just tracked the whole progress of the flight in the vertical sense on a, on a smoked aluminium foil. So that was the extent of our technology. And then we would be set either an out and return or a triangular course or occasionally a goal race. So you'd be landing at, you know, landing at your, your, your destination airfield. And for the triangle, you were set a certain photographic zone extending backwards out from the turning point itself. So you had to position the glider within that photographic zone at the back, lower the wingtip towards the turning point itself, which would be a physical feature like a, a bridge or a railway junction or something like that. Take your photo and then level the wings and rush off down the next leg. So you needed to minimize the penetration of that photographic zone clearly because the further you go in there, you're just adding extra distance on, which is not helping you at all because it's not the task distance is the task distance, if you will. And then uh, you chose your own start time. So people would be starting at different times. So just because you got back first didn't mean that you had won the day, not, not under those uh, rules. So average speed was calculated through the good old computer. And the winner, if it wasn't a devalued day because we didn't fly long enough, hours wise, was a thousand points. And everybody would be graduated down from from that accordingly, according to the relative speeds. And at the end of the competition, whoever had the greatest number of points was declared the winner. And the world championships would be scheduled over two weeks. And if you're in a country like Australia or America, where good weather is quite likely through much of the competition, you could end up with 11 or 12 competition, hard competition days. So there was a physical challenge. You needed to be fit and you needed to pace yourself very much. It certainly sounds like quite a trial, uh, maintaining that level of skill over several days and uh, continually performing enough uh, to stay in uh, contention. Yes, uh, the concentration is the one particularly. You... Yeah, certain nations had a philosophy, like, for example, the French, when we had the World Championships in France, which was the following one after Finland. The French had an attitude of trying to use pretty well most or all of the day, whereas the Americans, for example, would typically underset to, you know, for their own reasons, get everybody home, et cetera, et cetera. So one with the France one, or the French one, certainly you're, you're flying a long day and you know, you don't give an inch, you, you, you don't switch off for five or 10 minutes, you're, you're with it, concentrating hard the whole time. But the adrenaline being managed and uh, yeah, the focus is pretty strong. Excellent. Now, um, back in the Air Force world, uh, I believe by now you're probably on your second tour uh, on the old Treble One Squadron, yes? If you want to improve your 737 knowledge, why not attend one of our live technical refresher courses? These two-day webinars are not just a Zoom call, nor are they just an instructor stood in front of a whiteboard. 
Our professional production team in their London studio uses the latest technology to bring you a fully interactive and engaging experience. Ask your instructor questions live at any time. For more information and to sign up, visit 737lounge.com. I must admit, I'm I'm absolutely loving the the George Lee series. It's really interesting, and it's uh, uh, the the gliding is is a, a real passion of his. And uh, I think I think in the next part, actually, we're learning uh, more about um, his uh, his success. I think is the best way to describe it, and his various titles and that. But also that because uh, he did he did teach uh, uh, Prince Charles to to fly a glider as well. So I'm sort of looking forward to learning that. Uh, more about that in upcoming episodes. Something I've never tried. I've always wanted to have a go at glider flying. Really, of all the things, it's like so you, you've had you've had a go of a Cessna and all that kind of thing, the mm. actual powered flight. But you've never had a go in a glider. I'm amazed. It's, it's one, you know, Matt. It's one of those things. You know, when you when you're sitting in a Cessna or a, or a, you know any light aircraft like GA aircraft, you've got that engine noise and you can't hardly hear anything. So it's just bloody noisy. Mm. But just to have that experience of that sitting piece. in an aircraft yeah. of total. Peace. Yeah. I've got friends of mine who talk talk about talk so loving lovingly the same way as you do about sailing. You know where you've just got the power mm. of the wind and and all that kind of thing. So yeah, well there you are. That's got to be your bucket list for when we're allowed out, uh, which will be nice. It's yeah. <laughs> this is uh, we. Yes. Okay. Yes. It's perhaps not perhaps not the best episode to be talking about um, gliding when we have a, 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 a powered engine engine engineer. Yeah, yeah, power engineer. Yeah. So I've lost the ability to no, talk I today. I'm very sorry so... about that. I don't know what's the matter. Uh, now, listen, uh, guys. While we've been on air, actually, we've Go had a on. message from mm. one of our marvelous listeners. Now, we, now you guys have had the great pleasure of meeting uh, Neil, haven't you? Actually, and you have been to. Uh, to Bruntingthorpe uh, for what I was about to talk to, if I, if my memory serves me correctly. But um, uh, anyway, Neil sent a, a message into our WhatsApp number plus four four seven five seven two two four nine one six six, and uh, I must admit it made for very sad reading, and and that's why we uh, felt we wanted to sort of cover it really. So not wanting to interrupt the flow, uh, I thought uh, I'd send this on the WhatsApp as a uh, few people probably know uh, a lot has gone on at Brunt Bruntingthorpe over the last year much of which I can't comment much of which I can't comment on what I can say is that the guppy we looked after so that's Foxtrot Bravo Tango Golf Victor hashed one has been scrapped those of us that volunteered on her have gone through so many emotions this year but we'll always have the happy memories uh, we'd like to thank immensely those who supported and visited us throughout the years. Hopefully we'll all see you in various ways in the future. Blue skies, old girl, we'll miss you. I mean, that's I just think such it's sad, really, it? I think it's really sad, Matt. I do. I do. I mean, me and Nev had a really nice tour around that aircraft a few years back at the Cold War jets down at Bruntingthorpe mm. and um, met Neil there and... It's just, like I was saying when we were off, well, we're not off air, but when we were running the segment earlier, it's one of those aircraft that, that there's not like six million of these aircraft all around no. the world. You know, they're not, there's not hundreds of them about. And just to scrap, it's just... Oh, it seems almost terrible. criminal, doesn't it? But yeah. as I say, yeah. I mean, I'm sure I speak for everyone who's listening or watching to this in the fact that our hearts do go out to you, Neil. I know um, yeah, any project like this, when it has such a, a tragic end, I think there's no better way of describing it, is just not what you want, really, is it? Um, especially when all that work's gone into it. It's just, just awful. It is. But hopefully 
there'll be something good to come of it somewhere along the lines with the aircraft that are left. Hopefully well, there'll be... Um, maybe, let, let's hope that lessons homes. can be learned um, yeah. from it. Maybe lessons can be learned. So we have got Peter Collins on the show uh, back with us again for his second visit on the show. But before we get started uh, with our chat with Peter, we want to quickly mention that we'd love if you consider subscribing to our channel. And if you know of anyone who might be listening in the subjects or listening interested in the subjects that we talk about on the show and the interviews and the banter that we bring each week to share our podcasts. Last time uh, we had Peter on the show, we ran stories about large airlines storing their aircraft and the procedures that need to be followed to keep the aircraft and their engines serviceable uh, while they're on the ground. Again, if anyone is interested in listening to that episode where Peter was on last, head over to episode 314 of the show. Links for that will be in the show notes. And uh, so... We had uh, Peter on right as the airlines were feeling at worst and taking drastic measures late last spring, uh, nine months on. Uh, how has the landscape changed, Peter, in your perspective, particularly on when it comes to your field of work? And obviously, uh, I'm guessing, Peter, you've been quite busy over the last uh, sort of eight, nine months. Yeah, yeah. It's um, <laughs> surreal, I think, is, is probably the, the best description of everything, really. So main things, obviously, uh, protection, PPE and so on. Uh, a lot of engineers wearing masks all day, every day, and uh, taking these extra precautions, the temperature checks when you go in places, uh, checks, um, sort of routine checks to see if you've come into contact with anyone, etc. as usual. Uh, but in terms of the actual business, um, I was just sat here just reflecting on it. I think if four R's would describe it well, reorganisation. So a lot of places have had to completely reorganise and uh, uh, rethink things. Um, and don't forget also the Brexit transition is happening around about the same time, which has uh, had an impact because uh, I won't go into a huge amount of detail, but you know, you've got EASA, Registered Aircraft UK, all sorts of things going on to do with that at the same time okay redundancy sadly is of a reality again you don't really hear you know it's it's uh, everyone has their own individual uh, choice where they go to look for general news i'm talking about not just aviation related but general news you don't hear about the people who um are laid off and of course this affects everybody everywhere in the world right now okay but there's been a lot of shifting around of people a lot of airlines coming out of places like gatwick um, and so on and of course, these airports, keeping them running, there are concerns about it. I mean, I was just chatting to a security guard only the other day telling me of more people who were being laid off. And I've also heard of some areas where they've shut down air traffic control. Uh, and it is literally like making blind calls to go into airspace. Um, so reorganisation, redundancy, review the future plans, think about how you're going to do things um, Somebody told me uh, recently they'd heard that one holiday company had seen a 150% increase in holidays booked for 2021. Okay. I don't know if that's still the case. That's hearsay, right? But that was some time ago. That was late summer last year. Okay. Is that still the same now with the talk of people staying, say, in the UK and going, sort of staying in a, perhaps a caravan locally or something? I don't know. It's so too difficult to tell. They review future plans. Third on the fourth one is remain calm and carry on. Uh, really, in terms of the work that we've been doing, 
um, more business jet stuff. A lot of people who would normally fly uh, business class can no longer do that. So a lot of people have been getting together and hiring their own business jets. Uh, obviously, that's in a sort of something save for the super rich, really. Um, but there's, you know, quite a lot of business jet stuff. But uh, when borders close, you're limited. You, you can't fly. Um, a lot of freight still happening. Of course, a lifeline freight needs to get um, across the um, UK and other countries. How it's impacted us? We, yeah, we've still had had work. The work has changed. It's shifted gear um, slightly. Different customers, different tasks, and uh, and so on. Really, so it's a real gear shift. But um, a lot of stuff is cancelled at the last minute, or you can't get into a certain country because they just won't let you there go there or things change a bit of paper hasn't been filled in um but there's a lot of people out there working really hard we've got to remain hopeful we've got to remain positive as we do across every sector not just aviation everybody's got to try to stay positive but there's hugely challenging times really interesting uh, question just coming on the chat room from from lane street actually just saying how portable is the engine equipment uh, and can they pack it up and can you literally take it anywhere yeah, it depends what you're doing. Um, there's a range of equipment. If you're talking about um, boroscope inspections, um, the older stuff, if you go back uh, 10, 20 years or whatever. In fact, if you go back even further, um, you'd use what's called, known as a rigid boroscope. It's literally kind of a tube. And you'd you there's an eyepiece. You look through the eyepiece and this tube, uh, rigid tube, would go into a, a inspection port in the engine. Uh, but you can't make any recordings with that. You can't make any measurements with that. That was the olden days. Now we have uh, very much like an endoscope, a medical endoscope. It's a tube goes into the aircraft and has an articulating tip that moves around that you can steer. Now, you can't steer the boroscope with that. You can steer the angle that you're looking. So you have to be quite tactical with how you uh, feed it around the aircraft. And you have to be extremely careful you don't get stuck because uh, if you get stuck, then huge problems occur. Um, portability, um, you can, depends really. Um, you can fit it into a rucksack just, it's quite a big rucksack. The actual equipment itself isn't uh, very big. Um, you, you'll have a base unit with a screen on it and the control to move and articulate the boroscope and different companies produce different, uh, slightly different ways of doing this. Some of it is purely mechanical. There's a series of pulleys that go up the tube to move the tip um, some of this is purely mechanical some of it is uh, electromechanical so there's motors uh, to move them and there are some smaller boroscopes in fact if any of you are enthusiasts for example building model cars or real cars you'll know that you can go on to various websites and get a boroscope for probably under 100 pounds um, very cheap version probably not articulating so it's reasonably portable however if you've got a big engine to look at or several big engines uh the it's practical issues you've got to stand uh to turn the engine by turning the gearbox n2 or n3 if it's a rolls royce uh, using the gearbox and um so you've got to turn the engine yourself and you've also got to see the screen so sometimes you have to take an external screen with you so that you can see it as well so uh, uh, but reasonably, you can fit it into a, a, a bag that can go in the cabin overheads. Uh, but if, if necessary, you can um, check it in. But I, we try to avoid that because we, we have, have heard of cases where people have 
got somewhere to do an inspection only to find that the boroscope all eighty <laughs> pounds worth of it has, yeah. has gone missing yeah oh right oh wow okay so, uh, actually a supplemental question to that actually richard adams is asking and if so obviously based on it being very portable um have you ever had to fly abroad at really short notice to inspect an engine what's the shortest amount of notice you've ever had uh, in regards to to doing an inspection um well there was one time where um actually well i've talked about a colleague who does the same thing um was asked if he could make an inspection the equivalent of tomorrow lunchtime and he was busy and he and he laughed and said well if you hire me a business jet well next day uh wow sure enough um he got into the business jet sent me a very um smug smug yeah selfie <laughs> helping himself to the nuts nice. right and the red bull and yeah. uh, he, he literally went there uh did the inspection the pilots hadn't quite finished their coffee it was a very short sort of not serviceable and he was back by lunchtime um, Wow. <laughs> very short literally very short inspection you know you just yes or no yeah but you we we've got aog aircraft on the ground you know we we have to be able to respond you know as quickly as possible really that yeah. you typically you, i could be sat here phone goes and you have to have a go bag a lot of people are familiar with the go bag it's got everything ready you pick it up you go out the door and you're off um so it can be as short as that but it's frequently it's that's that's the exception rather than the rule most airlines as um and others will know you know they'll make other alternative arrangements yeah. Uh, Peter, actually, yeah, I'm going to uh, jump in with one of yeah, the questions jump in from the, the question. chat room. Uh, Stephen H's great question. Turbofans, are they absolute precision machines or is there some slack for errors or omissions in checks and maintenance? <laughs> I would say that they're, they're absolute precision machines. Um, it's, it's, if you're looking, if you're looking, if you're inspecting, I don't know, a blade or something, you will be given... Uh, limits, um, measurement limits. Uh, for example, if you find a, a radial crack on a blade, okay, uh, you will have a limit that you're allowed, depending on where it is, what it is, how big it is. Um, but generally speaking, for example, look at the CFM Leap engines on some of uh, some some engines. Some aircraft are even using composite. Uh, inside the engine for blades and so on and that tiny tiny you know point sort of four five five thou or less uh, of an inch even smaller than that um so i would go more on the side of saying absolute uh, precision uh, machines and uh, very small limits generally speaking so uh, um, uh, Captain Cruz is actually uh, asking a question in, in, in the chat room here. Uh, do you need different equipment for different engine models or, or, or are the basics the same? The real difference in the equipment is going to be the diameter of the boroscope. Um, for example, a lot of business jets, but also some larger jets, you may have to do uh, a certain type of inspection. For example, a J-hook on a CFM series and other engines. It's just a retaining ring that stops this... Uh, uh, this disc from moving, uh, you need a four millimeter boroscope, which is a thinner boroscope uh, to be able to get into the gap to look to see whether there's any wear there. Uh, most of the time people use a six mil uh, boroscope. Um, so the ver variety really is in terms of the diameter of the boroscope. 
uh, with a larger boroscope. Um, the, the trickiest bit of the engine to look at is the combustion chamber because you have to push, you can take all the ports off, but you have to push the boroscope around the engine to get the good angle so you can really inspect everything carefully. Um, with a thicker boroscope, you can, it's easier to push it around the engine. With a thinner one, they just sort of curl up, okay? So um, six mil is the most common diameter, but in terms of equipment, you've got to be able to, the other point is you, in this day and age, you really need, there's an expectation you can measure damage. Uh, the normal way that that's done is using a stereo tip, which has two lenses on it, a bit like the human eyes. Uh, you get a 3D image, you form a triangle, and uh, the equipment is able to look at a crack or a defect, and you can measure the area, you can measure the depth, providing you can get the boroscope close enough. That's the other thing, you have a box of tips each tip is worth about one or two thousand pounds each, so just don't drop them. And uh, you fit them on and you have to make measurements. So, but other than that, it's fairly standard uh, and you can do most engines, but other than the fact you've just got to consider, is this a business jet? Does it require a smaller sort of boroscope? And often that means buying an entirely new uh, bit of gear, so yeah. Uh, Richard uh, Bell's actually, or Rick Bell, sorry, is just saying, he's saying, yeah, I know all about getting a borescope stuck in a motor engine firsthand. When I was in MX, I, I, I got a borescope stuck in a burner uh, can on a C-130 engine. So. Yeah, it happens. Um, it does happen. And, you know, you, what you're asking somebody to do is to, to push a, a small, thin cable around sharp rotating parts or True. in the case of a combustor <laughs> you know you've got nooks and crannies and, and you you can get stuck um it's a question really of trying to do things in such a way that you're not rushing you do things steadily and you avoid areas where you're going to get stuck um as best as you can but sometimes we are required to look at areas where you're likely to get stuck and you just got to be really careful as long as you're careful and nobody rushes you the key thing is to not let somebody push you. Somebody pushes you, you just say, get lost. Do you want a piece of paper or not? If you, uh, if, you know, if you want me to do this job properly, I either do it properly or you find somebody else and I'll get home. It's as simple as that. Yeah. So you don't just leave the borescope in there and walk away <laughs> and say, well, mm, no. I'll find it. It'll burn off. <laughs> yeah. No, no. Um, in fact, <laughs> um, you know, uh, one of the roles that people such as myself have to do is give training on things like human factors and safety. And there are actually, I um, regret to say this, aircraft accidents that have taken place because um, 737 Manchester had an explosion in a combustion chamber can, um, tragic accident. Uh, one of the, um, I thought I had a photograph of it here, but I don't. Uh, one of the uh, uh, cans had a, I think it was a JT-8, had a hole in the um, combustion chamber can and obviously it blew up when power was applied. That was, I believe, down to the fact that it wasn't checked properly. There was a repair that wasn't checked properly. So that is the outcome, and that's 32 years for corporate manslaughter, Your Honour. So yeah, uh, that's the serious, there was, um, yeah. There was a, when I used to teach crew resource management, we used to use a case study for um, an Aero Peru uh, 737. Uh, I believe it was late 80s, early 90s that went down because uh, when it went in for regular maintenance, they had put uh, tape over the static ports. Um, and mm -hmm. they, when they, they took off, nobody noticed and they weren't, they didn't have any um, airspeed data. Uh, that mm -hmm. For some reason, they didn't have altitude data or airspeed data. So it may have been more than just the static ports, but yeah, yeah. unfortunately it happens. Right? 
That's right. It's, uh, yeah, that's uh, these things. So, they do have. It's human fact. Most incidents you see, there's is that Swiss cheese model you may have heard mm. of. That all of the things lining up is all. It's classic. You know that's what happens. And uh, yeah, so, uh, we've got a question actually from uh, Richard Adams uh, saying in the chat room. Is there any significant extra wear or reduced life for those number one engines as a result of them being sole taxi powered so often? Yeah, yeah. after the plane truce, so, this was, yeah. So, um, not really, not that I've seen. I mean, when we come to an engine, uh, we write a report on it, um, we get given the hours and cycles that an engine has done, and they often differ. Um, a little wear i suppose the same as with any engine um if you think about it during taxi okay you've got the initial inertia you need to put a bit of power on especially with one engine uh, quite a lot of power on and some aircraft it's just simply not possible you're not going to get it around the corner very easily but um um it's not something that we encounter as such but uh, i would imagine it it does happen i know a lot of airlines uh, taxi and in they shut down uh one um taxiing out they wait for a little while before they get the other one started so it probably is but it's not something that we've noticed as much so. and uh, mark Priestley uh, says as well a question from mark says has maintenance suffered or improved with less work pressures due to lack of supply and has brexit had any effect oh, no, not that word <laughs> <laughs> the b word um so um the, in terms of maintenance um it is varied widely depending on where you go um so some places um during that entire of lockdown people were busy checking aircraft checking taking covers off seals everything uh checking and making sure the aircraft were well carrying out work uh some airlines chose to keep their aircraft live so pilot would come in do a few circuits, land, move on to the next aircraft, take off, do a few circuits, land, go on to the next. And the whole machine just kept going. Some places, yeah, everybody was furloughed, massive uh, losses. Um, business jet sector, everyone carried on and sort of got even busier. So it actually varied uh, wildly, ranging from places going out of business. One place I know, I went there one week, there was eight engineers, and uh, next week I was called in. There was one guy on gardening leave. Oh, wow. Uh, so, uh, you know, it, but it's, it's varied. Yeah. Uh, and I've, that's puzzled me a little bit because um, I'm obviously glad that people are able to work and carry on. But it really has varied quite hugely. I can imagine. Uh, uh, Stephen and, uh, H uh, had a comment in the chat room. Actually, was saying that uh, I hope their guys are never tired or distracted, which uh, got uh, producer John thinking actually off the back of that. Is that we know our friends in ATC uh, because of the high concentration and pressure environments, uh, they have to take frequent breaks. I mean, how mentally draining is is the job that you do, and, and what are the steps that you take to sort of combat fatigue? Um, I'll answer that now. I didn't answer the question about Brexit. I'll come back to. Um, I was, but, I was uh, trying to avoid the subject. <laughs> oh, okay, I just screwed that one up. Big yeah, time. Um, feel free to answer it. <laughs> uh, it's not, not much to say, to be honest. Um, there are strict rules governing uh, rest breaks and so on, and a variety of different shift patterns that engineers do, depending on if they're in sort of maintenance, line, repair, engine workshops, and so on. Uh, you can't break those rules. 
in the past, say in the 80s and so on, there's been pressure put on people to break those rules. Um, and there are procedures in place within these organisations, within their documents that pushes people to report if they're being asked to do things beyond which uh, they're protected by by law and 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 so on um it depends on the nature of the work you know you've got to remember some engineers are crawl, crawling inside fuel tanks uh and it's very um uh, uh enclosed spaces you know uh, not for the claustrophobic uh, other engineers are outside uh, in ridiculously cold weather i've been there myself where your feet literally you're standing still turning an engine around watching a screen carrot factory you know <laughs> blades going along okay and um human factors is um uh is 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 yeah is the biggest thing to be honest but there are strict rules about it you you know um but um i don't think it's possible i say this cautiously because i know of people i think it's worse for people down the line they're working in some remote little hangar porter cabin thing and they've i typically hear oh would you mind checking all the life jackets at the same time while we do this engine ground run you know no you can't do that people put these silly requests in and uh, you know um there's stories from the past really the nowadays safety is so mm. so so important that uh, yeah yeah peter and, uh, there's actually yeah, another uh, question from mark yeah, sure. in the chat room and uh this kind of goes along with air aircraft and sitting in storage um how is corrosion when it's discovered how is it removed or are the plate the blades just replaced and is your does your organization just provide a report to the operator and and then it's up to them to do what they want with that information or, or how does that so, you, so you you have a customer effectively and you might you will have somebody who's dealing with the aircraft um looking at sort of maintenance but you'll have a customer who's the owner or someone who's leasing it or whatever but um uh, corrosion so that again there's um, a wide variety of materials mainly titanium but the blades are made out of um, and particularly on compressor blades but also low pressure turbine blades you can get sulfidation and corrosion um, and yeah if it gets too bad um, you can't really repair corrosion you just got to uh, give the engine an overall which costs about a million minimum um, and um, so you can repair there's a thing called a blend repair you can carry out on if you had missing material so for example let's say a bit of fod let's just take an example some good luck coins went down the engine um then um you know you can carry out a, a blend repair um which involves a little tiny a bit like a dental drill really very very slow drill that just drills away at the the edge of the blade i think somewhere i have got a damaged blade you won't be able to see it very well but this blade has got a, a nick in it so what you would do for this this nick is you would you would blend is a way to make a smooth curve a very very smooth curve so that can't progress or, or a crack but there are limits there's only so much you can do and all manufacturers in manufacturing these blades have, have already uh, done the research to know how far this is likely to go in this time frame and what repairs you can carry out um, so yeah that is something we do it's possible but there's a limit to what you can do because again you're sticking a tube into an engine and you're trying you know you don't want to take too much off you know <laughs> it's sort of like a blade with missing teeth you know it's an engine with missing teeth if you take too much off the engine's unserviceable but yeah there are repairs that can be done yeah certainly 
Alex Robinson, uh, Peter, in the chat room says, how do you track how much time and cycles the engines have done? Do the airlines have to tell you? So most of the information's logged in many, many manuals, but uh, flight computers, uh, FMCs, MCDUs or McDoos um, have got the information there. But when you arrive to carry out inspection, um, they provide you the information. Um, normally it's the maintenance organisation who provides you with that information. But our job really isn't to make a judgment based on age. Our job is to walk in completely neutral, knowing nothing about the engine, to look at it completely fresh and to thoroughly check it. Uh, you don't want to be in a position where somebody says, oh, have you seen this? Although there are times where you know of a defect, something that needs to be uh, inspected regularly. A bit like you said with the um, PA28s earlier on the spars, you know, there's uh, when you get an airworthiness directive or a service bulletin, we have to regularly check something. And you may have either a known part that something's been found that needs to be checked um, in a range of aircraft or engines. So you go and check it and you, you, you go and see if that uh, fuel shut off lever is, is okay. Is there any um, threads wearing away? Um, or if there's a known thing that's happened to that engine uh, some, and a defect has been discovered, then a time limit of 100 hours, 25 cycles, go and check it again, check it again, measure it, it is put into place. And that's really how you kind of find out information. Armando, we've got another one from uh, Mark in the chat room, haven't we? Yeah, and this is a, a great question, especially as we're talking about innovation and aviation. Are engines now at their limit for getting maximum fuel efficiency or do you, do you see more advances in the, in what, I guess, what we now consider traditional turbofan engines? So NOx, nitrous oxide is the big thing um, to do with pollution and efficiency. There are such tiny incremental sort of movements forward, but they have a big impact on aircraft where you could be putting 50,000 quid's worth of fuel in every flight. Um, so, the bleeding edge um you know have we got there um you're looking at things like the the leap and other aircraft engines yeah we're quite close to the edge and i think there's there's a risk that people try to push things slightly too far i mean certainly with uh things like the leap and other engines um you know being able to effectively almost 3d print blades now effectively means that you're not as dependent on having a workshop kitted out and you have to build your engine to the workshop you don't have to do that anymore you can just say i want this shape oh, and that gives you this efficiency um but a lot of all these aircraft when you look at the aircraft and their range it, it's these figures isn't it it's the number of passengers it's it's how far you can go uh, the weight that can be carried and you just shift them accordingly do you want to stretch your aircraft and get more people but have a lower range possibly um and um, dare I say, I mean, I spoke to one guy, uh, I forget where it was in Eastern Europe. Um, they had uh, a few mountains that people could go skiing. And, and he, he was saying it's very real, the, the climate change thing. They used to be able to ski, they can't anymore. And he was, he's saying 50 years time, I reckon there'll be electric engines. And wow, you know, um, but uh, I think... There's more to come, certainly. But uh, yeah, we're right near the edge and everyone's jostling for that extra 0.05%, I think. Uh, this is funny, kind of a funny uh, 
related story is 2009, I went to Kilimanjaro just for that reason, just because uh, mm. there was a lot of talk about will the, will the, the ice glaciers be uh, on Kilimanjaro 10, 15, 20 years from now. So I, so yeah. I did that in 2009 to get out. There's a yeah. lot of conjecture there. Some people completely disagree and say it's just cyclic. Yeah. It's always been like that and, and so on. <laughs> but it's very real, isn't it? It's very real. Yep. Last one uh, from uh, Richard Adams. Assuming the future is jets as generators for electric motors doing the motive stuff, will that mean tolerances could be less for the jets? Um, I don't think so. I, I think the, the key the key thing is that you're effectively transporting a huge amount of air and carrying many tons on this little piece of metal. Um, and I think the actual blades themselves, whether I, I, it's because the whole design of the jet will change really, because um, your fan is going to your fans, your propeller is not 80% of the thrust with the rest. Um, but I think actually you're relying on that. Um, I think the tolerances will stay the same. It will all be down to what we use to propel the aircraft with the materials, the weight and so on. Um, I, if anything, I think is more likely that uh, looking at what Rolls-Royce has been doing and we're moving more and more towards composite stuff, which is lighter. The tolerances for things like that are much smaller. Um, so, and the measurement equipment will follow it in that it will become extremely accurate and more accurate. So I think actually the tolerances will will be tiny that you're allowed to uh, to have. So, yeah. Indeed. Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, Peter, it always fascinating. Uh, thank you so much for joining us again. But thank unfortunately, you. that is where we're running out of time rapidly, or we're technically over time, uh, to be fair. So, Carlos, <laughs> please, the fast, fastest wrap up in in the entire world. Fascinating stuff, though. Really was. Thank you, Peter, so much. Yeah. Well done, thank Peter. You. Thank you very um, much. Thank you. So quick one, quick roll round the uh, crew then, just to see what everyone's doing next week. So we'll start with, uh, we'll start with you, Matt. What are you uh, up to next week? I will be mostly trying to make sure people have received their wine safely. <gasps> Very important. Oh, good. Glad to hear it. And Armando, what are you up to next week? Well, unfortunately, I will not be joining you for the next two weeks. <gasps> this, yeah. this is how he breaks it to us live on air, so we can't complain, honestly. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm actually, next week, I'm headed up to Oshkosh, um, to the Basler facility to check out some airplanes and do some training. Um, so that's going to take a, a little bit of time. Um, so I'll try to send in some segments. But I think most importantly, we were talking about it during the show today, it's I, I think it's safe to say that we can announce that yep. uh, 12 March. So on 12 March, um, we that week we are celebrating, uh, not us, everybody's celebrating International Women's Day, which I believe is on the 8th of March. 12th of March is our regular Friday show. Um, and we're going to do something kind of unique. And all of us that you see here are going to take a step back. And we're going to hand the keys of the show to... Uh, the one and only uh, commercial pilot and jumper driver, uh, Dr. Stephanie uh, Plummer, who is going to be on loan to us from APG. Uh, my beautiful wife, aviation enthusiast and the world's best co-pilot, Megan, will be uh, playing the role of Matt uh, as not knowing anything about aviation. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Uh, 
Miss Jody Ruger, former airline pilot and air show performer, will be joining us. And then also uh, potentially Miss Harriet Abbott, who was a former cabin crew member. Um, so we're going to have, uh, we're all going to take BA. a step back. For BA. Yeah. yeah. So we're, we're going to have a, a wonderful uh, cast of hosts and we'll, we'll try to record some uh, special segments for uh, Women in Aviation and International Women's A uh, Day. And uh, that'll be a, a very a cool show that I, I may go somewhere else and just watch it on YouTube or Absolutely. something like that. Yeah, definitely. Carlos, so, I think, is already making popcorn. Yeah, no, he, he's, he's got plans for popcorn and all sorts, haven't you, mate? Yeah. It's, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's, go, it's definitely going to be one of those where I'll tell you what will probably have to happen. We'll have to get Gemma to sit in your seat for a little while, even if only for half an hour. Um, but, yeah, definitely get that date I'll in your diary, him. please. It's the 12th of March, Friday the 12th of March. Uh, if you're here in the UK, it'll start at 7 o'clock. Uh, the same time as it does always friday the 12th of march get that date in your diary it's going to be so much fun i'm i'm, I'm it's, it's just I'm, go, I'm gonna be loving every minute watching that show i really am i'll try richard adams i'll try i'll ask her don't panic anyway <laughs> social media links if you don't already know make sure if you don't check us out on facebook instagram and twitter search for plain talking uk our whatsapp number if you want to get your picture on the green screen behind me or matt you can send that to plus four four seven five seven two two four nine one six six don't forget you can email the show if you've got any questions at all you can email a show at podcast at plaintalkinguk.com check out our website www.plaintalkinguk.com on the website you'll find our links to our patreon and amazon links if you want to become a patron of the show i can confirm that this week our awesome patreon listeners have helped us to increase our storage facility on our p2k broadcast tower so matt's got loads of storage on there now so thanks to all Certainly our have. patreon donators and paypal donators for your support Support. Why not subscribe as well to our YouTube channel? If you don't already do that, you'll get notifications when we go live and uh, you can help us shape the conversation of the show. So search for us on YouTube, plaintalkinguk.com. Uh, and uh, also, don't forget as well, if you have any questions or you want to get in contact uh, with Peter in regards to um, possible careers, possibly in that. Uh, searching and checking out engines and the inspection of engines you can send us your questions uh, to the show and we'll forward them on to peter if you do have any th uh, questions for peter and uh, yeah actually i want to say as well before we finish the show again peter thank you ever so much for coming on the it's show all... it's been great oh, to yeah, have you welcome. on most welcome. Uh, honestly the chat room have been there's literally we, we can spend another three hours with the questions in the chat room i think uh, for you so Perhaps we should have just a show with Peter. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that's another so, special all lined up. Brilliant. Another special Excellent. lined up. There we go. <laughs> so that's it. That is where we are going to bring the episode to an end. So big thanks to all the chat room again. Thanks, chat room, for all your awesome support tonight. Great to see all you in there. And that's it then. So from me, Carlos, here in my home studio, from Matt in the P2K Master Suite Studios, from Armando in his glorious Charlotte Studios, and from Peter in his home studio just down the road. Take care, everyone. Have a great weekend. Bye-bye, everyone. Week. Take care. Bye.